Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Jonathan. I'm missing my cue. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. <laughs> Today, we wanted to have Dr. Jonathan Foy on to discuss his upcoming book, Beyond the Green Mat, the history of pro wrestling Noah, and catch up with him after his recent trip to Japan to watch the G1 Climax Finals. We're also going to discuss the G1 just in general, the ongoing Noah and One Victory Tournament, advice for traveling to Japan as a wrestling fan, and have a conversation about ethics in the world of wrestling media today. We have a lot of great stuff to cover, so without further ado, let's get into it. So to start us off, Dr. Jonathan, if you could go ahead and just give a quick introduction for our new listeners and what you do and where they can find you. Uh, sure. So I have been lucky to be writing about pro wrestling for <clears throat> really the last two years. So I had a book that I've been working on for a long time, um, basically thinking about it one way or another for years that I finally got to writing during one of our many lockdowns in Australia. So that was uh, Ganbaru, a, uh, which looked at the way in which uh, all Japan pro wrestling survived the year 2000 roster split. And as well as that, I had a second book about the Muto years when Muto was running all Japan. Um, apart from that, I teach at UNSW. I'm one of their casual teachers in media, as well as that, I edit Insights Magazine for the United Church in Australia uh, for the New South Wales and ACT Synod. So between all of these things, uh, I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about writing and trying to divert as much of that into thinking writing about pro wrestling as I can without being able to do that as much as I'd like, I think. Um, and apart from that, I've been kind of going to Japan as much as I can the past, it's really 10 years this year. Um, I just recently got back from my ninth trip there and my Japanese has not really improved during that time, but I'm trying to learn as we go with that and with all the challenges that come with that. Awesome. And where can everybody find you? Just as a quick plug. Sure. So at Jonathan Foy, just for my name uh, on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook under the same name, and uh, I don't know how many people are in Blue Sky. It's worth checking that out if you have been able to get a code. I'm on there as well um, under the same handle. Awesome. And recently, your publisher announced your newest book, Beyond the Green Mat, The History of Pro Wrestling Noah. Naturally, Alicia and I are extremely excited for this as big pro wrestling Noah fans, uh, but could you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, sure. So this one, you know, with the first book, it was largely about how all Japan survived the roster split and the creation of Noah, but looking at that largely from the standpoint of the companies that were left behind. So this one largely looked at how companies survived those circumstances. And, you know, if you look at all Japan, they've had plenty of stories about kind of how they survived this long and as long as they have when people predicted they would go under. Noah, for its part, when I was looking into that, I kind of came across the myriad of different ways that they've survived maybe three or four situations where you would think the company would have gone under. So um, largely through researching the first book, I kind of came up with a pitch for a second one, which I thought if I was going to self-publish, 
you know, the first one and eventually the second one that I'd want to publish it for the next one just because, you know, it's easy to have that in a lot of ways. And I kind of thought, you know, here's a company that survived so much that that was worth digging into a little bit. So it's the story really of Noah's formation from 2000 up until their return to the Brutacon in 2021. And apart from that, there's a number of different incidents that happen in between there. Anyone that knows about anything to do with the history just knows about kind of these struggles that they've had. They, they were born out of struggle, really. So it's, I think, an interesting story with them. I think it's one that goes to what we love about pro wrestling and kind of the struggles on screen and the struggles off screen are kind of very much linked. So it's been a fun one to write basically over the course of a year that one um that year went very very quickly born out of struggle is such a kind of perfect way to describe the promotion and sort of what they it really does encompass the entire history of of the promotion in that way so that's that's amazing um jonathan and you know i i feel very privileged that rachel and i get to talk to you a lot about your writing and, and how you're approaching your research but for people you know listening like writing about Noah, a 23-year-old promotion, it's not a very old promotion necessarily, but that's still a massive undertaking. So can you explain for people listening what your research process and approach was like for this particular book? So basically for this one, um, it's just a matter of listening to Kick Out and ripping off your material since you guys have already <laughs> been through getting stuff translated. And all. No, ser- seriously, um, that, was a, that was one of the big resources I did use. Um, but similar to what you guys have done in terms of, you know, you've both um, sought to try to get some of the original text, some of the shoe pros, some of the uh, Tospo articles here and there for, you know, the, the purpose that they serve um, to try to get some of the original interviews and things like that and try to get the wrestlers in their own words. So a lot of this was attempting to say, well, Going back through the archives of the Wrestling Observer was one big part of that, just to see what we've already got, what's on the public record, kind of easily enough accessible. Um, you do have to still trawl through their um, kind of a backlog of, of history there, and it's not always as easy as uh, you would think as far as the Observer's uh, archives went. I would have thought that that would be like a fairly straightforward one. It's not, but... I went back through that a fair bit, saw what is missing here. Um, there's large chunks of that that have not been updated or digitized. There's bits and pieces where Dave Meltzer talks about Noah in a very quick kind of sparing way. Um, and from there, it was kind of like, well, how can I access Weekly Pro? And I don't have um, by any means any sort of real access to all of their articles or all their history so it was a matter of trying to get my hands on what little parts of that i could i tried to get as many of the promos and wrestling interviews translated as i could by um justin nipper appears a fair bit in the book i asked him and fumi saito a lot of questions i eventually got to interview some of the noah talent past and present so there are about six wrestlers i got to speak to maybe a few more um that First, starting with the people that no longer work there and then through Noah's PR people, eventually setting up to interview a few of the people who are currently there. And being pretty lucky in all of that, I think that 
if I did it again, I'd probably look to have more of those interviews because that's the part I really like. But in that whole thing, um, I think it's kind of a combination of just trying to track out what's there, what needs to be translated, and how do I speak to the people on the ground and try to kind of get some verbal history to this thing. I love that. I think that's just a really um, beautiful way to do it. Try to get the history in the words of the people who experienced it as well as, as an outside perspective. And we're going to talk about that a lot more um, later in the episode as we talk about wrestling media, wrestling ethics, and just covering these stories, because that's something that I know um, all of us are just really passionate about. So thank you for sharing that. And I am really, really excited for that book when it comes out. Do you have any details on release yet? Anything you can drop? So uh, the book has been confirmed as being one that, at least right now, unless we encounter some snags and that can happen, you can have surprises. Um, it will be, it's scheduled to be released by the end of this year. I don't know if anything will affect that. And sometimes you'll have minor delays, but that's what my publisher said about it. We're also going to be doing a crowdfunding campaign for that one. So I expect that we'll probably launch that in October. And that one's going to be through Indiegogo. It's going to be kind of one of those kind of models where someone can pay to get a digital or a physical copy of the book and in advance. And that helps fund the whole thing. And I've also confirmed that the person who did the art for my first two books, uh, Muhammad Yassin or Mashkila, he's going to be doing the cover and the interior artworks for this one. So we're going to try to use some of his artwork for that crowdfunding campaign. So those are kind of the details that I have at the moment. I wish I could just tell you it's going to drop in October on this date and look forward to that, but I can't yet. It's um, still that slight bit up in the air and we have to finalize things. Still, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. Indiegogo is, is taking me back. That's actually the platform that Chris Charlton used to fund his books. Um, I think it's, what is the first one called? The Lion something or other? The first New Japan one? Lion's Pride, yeah. Lion's Pride, he funded that one on that, and then he funded Eggshells on Indiegogo as well. So it's a very good platform for that. So I think that's great, Jonathan. I think that you're going to have a tremendous amount of success doing that as well. It's It'll be really exciting to see that I think the community come out for um, this book because it's, it's in incredibly important to have 23 years of Noah sort of cataloged the way that you approached it. So fantastic. My publisher told me when it comes to these sorts of um, things, you know, there's an upside to it, but there's also a downside. You're going to need to have to be a bit of a shill for this one. I'm like, oh, I can do that. That's not a, a problem. <laughs> That's no problem. And we're excited for to have three episodes now dedicated to your work, which is really exciting for us. A lot of, uh, we talked about this on the end of the year episode, but Kickout began and you were like one of the first people to really approach us and we're like, hey. I have this book coming out, you know, can I, can I come on? Can we talk about the book? And we were like, of course. And that's a huge part of like the story of like how we launched this thing. So it's so cool that you're about to release a third book and we'll hopefully be a part of it with you in some way. And it's awesome. I think it's so cool. Makes me teary, honestly, <laughs> but I really, <laughs> excited. and um, yeah, we're happy to help you shill. We're always happy yeah. to be carnies, uh, but only for Dr. Jonathan Foy. I, I try to show you guys as much work as as much as I can. Um, I think that we're we also are probably too um, I don't know, too modest about our own stuff as well. Yeah. 
yes. we have that shared disease, but we are good shills for each other, and that counts, I guess. <laughs> I think it's just the millennial mindset, right? Has to be, has to be. There's some some self punishment there or something. I don't know. We could probably <laughs> unpack that further. Maybe we'll save it for like the next end of the year. <laughs> so it'll be like therapy. Yeah, at the end of the year, yeah, we just don't analyze ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I think by the end of this year, I, I get the feeling it's going to be very much like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, speaking of Noah, you were recently in Japan for New Japan's G1 Climax Finals. Um, we're going to discuss that in depth, too. But you did catch some of Noah's N1 Victory Tournament while you were there. When writing your book, you probably encountered a bunch of Noah's previous years or tournaments, but we were wondering, do you have a favorite year for Global League as it was previously known and now it's the N1? Do you have any memories, matches that kind of stick out in your head? So I didn't dig into the Global League as much for this one. Outside of that, the, there was that first Global League that they ran in 2010, I think it was. Then there was the... I think it was the it was the year where Marufuji took part in the Global League, having also taken part in the Champion Carnival and Noah's Tag League in the, pretty much the same month. Um, and so in the end, he ends up injured and they have to substitute someone else in. I'm not saying that's a favorite one because that sounds horrendous and horrible to say that when Marufuji ended up um, injured through it. But that was very interesting to see the way that they came up with enough plan for that one. And... Certainly, um, the way in which they use some of the tournaments to build up Kaido Kiyomiya, um, and through that period of time, I love looking back on his ascension. Um, that was one I got to see at the time just a little, little bit of. So I loved that year, um, so 2018 and 2019. Um, I really liked the 2021 and one. So that was the year that you kind of had the tremendous kick battle in the final between uh as far as nakajima and keno went just um a lot of people then really rated the rematch that they had later um title for title match i much preferred that in one victory final just because there's a finish and because they kicked each other as hard as they possibly could you had that um that's really the one that stands out the most to me as my personal favorite but mileage will vary hmm Alicia, you've been a fan of Noah for quite some time now. So do you have a favorite uh, tournament, favorite Global League or N1? For selfish reasons, I I do have a preference for 2012. Mm. Um, a, a certain man won that one. Kenta won that <laughs> one. Um, which was really important. Um, it's a huge part of his story. So I'm, I'm partial to 2012. I think 2017 is tremendous for the story. And how much story played out in that one for not just Keno and being the last man standing, but there's so much that happens with the major players. I also am very partial to um, 2020. 2020 was interesting. It was so obvious that it was going to be Katsuhiko, I think, pretty much the entire time. But there was something to that. Um, he felt like the most dangerous man in the world in the 2020 and one and there was something about that that was um i just have this very strong memory of it it's perhaps because it's so tied to the pandemic as well i think that there's just like a lot of those we talk about it all the time on this platform like some of those things that happened in the pandemic like the memories are just so strong and like that's just one of them for me mm -hmm. um so yeah i would say 2012 was very 
um is very important 2017 is huge there's so much story implication there and then i am i am pretty partial to um 2020 yeah that's actually very similar to where i am as well um i like obviously 2017 is important to me in a lot of ways um 2018 I've spent a lot of time in recently and I've watched through most of that global league and I really really liked it it's really good everyone just sort of competing for either like their first shot or another shot at Sugira it's just really intense and it's just a battle of the youths um or like the mid-gen and Kaito to uh, get up there and um you kind of knew Kaito was gonna win like you got that sense but it just it was really good I really like that one um actually most of my favorites you kind of know who's gonna win out the gate because 2019 you, you sort of know it's gonna be Keno because he just started Congo and he has this whole thing going with Kaito and then um 2020 like you said I just have a lot of really fond memories it's actually weird to me that you and I didn't know each other during the 2020 and one we were just about we to met just after which is so weird because I feel like I did know you <laughs> during yeah, that one I was like well we spent we spent the end one together we got to know each other during the no we did not um but we were just about to meet and um that also it felt like a catalyst of how we met because we were um the very first conversation we had was about Nakajima getting ready to go face Shiyazaki so there's just a lot of nostalgia in that for me as well so I don't know I really really like the 2020 so that whole stretch from 2017 to 2020 I guess it's a long one um but those were some really excellent tournaments and uh yeah this year this year is turning out to be really fantastic too we're having some really great matches um I don't know who's gonna win which we'll talk about in a little bit I have no idea who's going to win but uh you were there for a couple of the shows or was it how many shows were you there for Jonathan uh as if it, yeah as if it two two of the shows yeah so they had that three-day stretch at Kirkin and I was somewhere in the air above Tokyo during the first one so i narrowly missed i went over to the airport i got there just as like that show was finishing kind of thing so i missed that one but i caught yeah there was last to it at um at Kirkin and like the attendance went up as the shows progressed and for some reason it was that third night that sold pretty well i'm not sure why that is if it was just the card or if it was just kind of but it's a good sign that they can gain momentum over time with that but yeah no i was there for um, I can't even remember the dates right now as far as what the, they were, but I was there for, I think, night three and night four of the M1. Mm -hmm. And that was the 9th through the 11th. So you were there on the 10th and the 11th. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have it written down, actually. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the atmosphere. I'm glad that you sort of mentioned the audience because um, even just watching it on Wrestle Universe, the atmosphere in Kirk and Hall was electric, especially for nights three and four the ones you were there for and especially night four which was probably so far my favorite night of the n1 um but what was it like being there live see the thing is um a lot of venues don't really come across on tv as they are so i remember going to see uh when i saw kento miyahara defend the triple crown against kai in january 2019 that match was incredibly loud in the arena and you watch it on on tv and it just doesn't sound quite the same it's kind of so-so right the yeah so kurikan is a lot louder in person than it is on tv so if it sounds loud with what you're seeing on wrestle universe chances are it's probably a lot louder in the place itself and 
they the last two matches of both nights especially were really really loud um that crowd was fucking fantastic like that um especially when yuma anzai picked up his win like that was i was seated in the small yuma anzai section so there was most people were cheering for manabu sawyer and i can't fault them at all for that but definitely um most of the the audience were cheering for sawyer and i was seated next to two guys in particular that were really loudly pulling for anzai and so when he won they just lost their shit which was fantastic but yeah, I, I think um, as far as that goes, generally Kurikan is a very loud arena. It captures sound well. It doesn't always come across that way on TV, but it definitely was loud there in, in person. So currently we're still actually a little over halfway through the tournament. Um, we are now rounding through day six. I believe day seven will be on the 26th, so it is currently the 22nd. Um, but I want to hear your match recommendations. What were your favorite matches of the tournament so far and why? So there was the Yuma Anzai win, which straight up just I didn't expect to happen necessarily. I thought that he would probably go longer without picking anything up. I think the only thing with the execution of that was I would have liked to have seen Soya pick up a win the night before that to kind of cement it as him going into it undefeated. But I was still just very well booked and that was still an excellent match. And to see that moment live was fantastic. Um, there was also the main event of the next night. So that was um, Go Shiyazaki against Wagner. And that match just, apart from being incredibly loud, I don't know how this came across on TV, but Go was basically playing a heel um, in terms of his mannerisms, in terms of his facial expressions and how visibly he annoyed he was that Wagner was getting cheered. Um, he was subtle with it, but he was definitely like cranky mode and didn't have the flower with him, didn't give away the flower that night. So I think that was an indicator as to where his mind was at. Um, the chops were horrific. Like they were very loud. Um, both of them carved up each other's chests a fair bit um i think that came across pretty well i didn't expect wagner to win so that was a good moment um i think he's cemented himself well in this tournament and i'm hoping he'll at least be alive by the last night of the thing that he'll stick in there we'll get to predictions later but um I, yeah i i'd say those were my favorite ones so Bar. it's definitely had plenty of others that I, i'm not thinking of right now that you could go ahead and recommend i made the comment that if anything those two nights at curriculum were too good I, I kind of felt a bit drained afterwards from how loud everything was and how great those two nights were um i think the tournament has yet to have any bad matches really it's been incredibly solid i agree with you on that like i i don't see these takes on my timeline necessarily i have a very well cultivated Twitter timeline but I did hear through the grapevine that there were people complaining about like even night one having um a lot of terrible matches and it's like well we must be watching Noah in different planes of reality because I like you Jonathan I agree like I just don't think there's been a bad night of this tournament like there's been some matches that have been better than others there's been some performers who have been better than others but um by no stretch of the imagination has there been a bad night of this tour this has been I think one of the most like 
solid and most captivating end ones from top to bottom like the level of intrigue I think among people who are really invested in Noah and really invested in the direction of this tournament has been excellent because as we're going to talk about in a moment no one has any idea who is going to win this and Noah has led us here and it's just fascinating even people that I normally don't care for all that much um as far as performers go have been pleasantly surprising in this one like I am um I can't even remember the guy's name right now okay oh um sucks uh Saxton Huxley I know normally uh, I nearly called him Saxton Huxley which would have been maybe my new nickname for him but he um is not <laughs> someone I generally care for his performances he had a pretty decent to solid match on that second night that I was there as far as um uh, I think it was him against Anaway or it was, was a that, brawl in any event yeah was that um day three Day three, yes. Uh, Saxon Wexley defeated Lance Onaway. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a bit of a brawl, and they kind of spilled parts of that out into the crowd, kind of close-ish to where I was sitting and stuff. And it was like that was a decent match, and it was like, well, if if Huxley can bring this level all the time, I probably would reevaluate um, how I thought about his performances and stuff. So that was pleasantly surprising. Like I I don't really see those takes either about this being a bad tournament i don't really care to see them if that's what people think i i don't know everyone's watching this thing differently i get that but i that did not come across at all having seen the shows and I, i've been to bad wrestling shows that that wasn't one of them rachel has a lot more thoughts i think to share than i do necessarily on um top matches i do want to put a pin though in us talking about a top Geico Kujin beyond Wagner. Like we know that Wagner is probably like the ultimate of this tournament per se, but there might be someone else or maybe like we'd want to nominate between the three of us. So we'll put a pin in that and come back to that. But Oh, interesting. Perhaps, perhaps, right? Yeah, Wagner's, perhaps. Like, yeah. Wagner's an easy grab. That's a given. Yeah. But maybe there's somebody else we'd like to either nominate or bury. We'll see. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but or, or, or a bit of both, like I just kind of did with Huxley. The... Yeah, you did do both. You, got, you, you gave him some... Yeah, you gave him some praise, and then you also told us he sucks. So that's fine. That that works. But um, <laughs> I didn't mean to say really that. I just fun. kind of slipped with the pronunciation of his name. Just to hear. <laughs> I actually didn't mean to be. Um, he kind of inevitably made me a little bit fond of him because it clearly meant a lot to him that he was going to face um, Shigazaki. That that was like a big singles match for him, in the way that he tweeted about it. Like he he kind of came out of character a little bit. Like he stayed sort of in character but came out of character to like reveal how much that match like was going to mean to him and so like that will always yeah. get me someone treating Shizaki like a big deal like in a match like that was just and, cute so now I'm fond of him and I, I mean I also really like his gimmick it feels like he's playing kind of Bruiser Brody right I'm like I always love that gimmick and I feel as though I just want him to lean into that more and kind of I get the feeling like he's not as chaotic as he could be if that's what he's going for it looks like all very controlled in the ring with what he does so the him against Unaway they, they, they're tearing the you know I'm always a sucker when they take the pads away from ringside right like that sort of stuff they were doing that everywhere and they're just doing crazy stuff for its own entertainment's sake I thought be like this all the time <laughs> anyway we could spend the whole podcast talking about that yeah we'll loop back around to the Geico Kujan I'll share I'll go day by day on the matches that I really liked because what I found 
and it's like it's hard in a good way right it's like a good problem to have there's so many good matches it's hard not to name at least a couple of things per show which is i think is a good problem to have but day one i wanted to highlight in particular soya versus katsu was outstanding could still be my match of the tournament um Mm -hmm. but i'm not sure because there's been some other things that have happened that have like also blown me away but this was a match to just start us off outstanding I also really loved um, Jake Lee versus uh, Timo. I loved Timo throwing the Inoki kicks off of the mat at Jake. That was fucking great. That was a match for sickos, and I loved it. It was awesome. That's pretty much any Thatcher match, but I really loved that one. Day two to me was all Shio versus Anzai. I thought that was fantastic. Um, Anzai, like, like shaking Shio off at the end, too. Outstanding. Um, day three was a huge day for me. Anzai versus Soya massive and like Jonathan I agree I think that that would have had a bigger impact if Soya hadn't lost to Inaba the day before love Daiki Inaba big fan of like propping him up and getting him through what he needs to get through but I didn't think he was ready to beat Soya so I thought that was interesting booking from from Noah there but huge match for Anzai um I liked Masa versus Jack Jack has been excellent in this tournament too and he is such a character and so different than he was even last year when people were calling him a caw and being mean to him. Um, Katsuhiko versus Wagner. I loved this match. And I didn't really see a lot of people talking about this match, which made me feel kind of weird because I was like, am I the only one that's like freaking out about how good this match was? I thought Katsuhiko versus Wagner was outstanding. I loved it. Um, <clears throat> Keno versus Inamura. Incredible. Like storyline from top to bottom. Just phenomenal. Day four um katsu versus inaba a lot of little storyline stuff katsu essentially tortured him for however long that match lasted but sometimes you need that um masa versus inamura what a heartbreaking match i think inamura is a standout in this tournament but he's not really won anything um but sometimes in that you can have a great storyline and that's what inamura has had um wagner versus shiazaki Jonathan, I'm so glad you talked about Shiazaki in this match because to me, he's not being a heel. To me, he is being Shiazaki Go. This is how he is. And I think that people, um, and this is not a comment about you, Jonathan, of course. It's just that people forget that that's his natural affectation. <laughs> that is how he is um, when he is not being <laughs> like- a resting Axis. grumpy face. Yeah, like he's just, like, he's just, how do I describe him? He's just, um, what's, he's aloof. That's just how he is. Uh- yeah. Um, and he can he can kind of dip into this a little bit even when he's doing the Axis thing or even like in like the fourth range Shio thing. But like, I think because so many people's first experience of Shio has been fourth reign, like uber baby face, like, or, you know, reformed ace Shio, um, people don't realize that like, no, that's like his default character is very aloof um, Shiozaki. And like, I love the part where he takes Wagner and like they're on the outside like where the the gray barricades are that separates the floor from the the next level of seats in cork and and he throws him onto wagner onto the onto that barricade and then like walks away and the ref is like you know yelling at him and like putting his like finger in shio's face and he does that eyebrow waggle he does when he's like annoyed he's not like really listening because he doesn't think he did anything wrong i love that that is classic (laughs) shiazaki go classic i loved it such a return to form for him i thought it was great um that match was outstanding um and really like almost any wagner match that you pick up from this is going to be like pretty much excellent he's been another one in this tournament to watch um day five katsu versus anzai excellent 
him making like those comparisons to Anzai as he is right now to Katsu's younger self very heavy stuff but very good stuff really really good shit um Jack versus Keno I really liked that match a lot I thought that was really good um what else did I like Jake versus Masa was outstanding (laughs) I like really love this match I tweeted about it um Masa gave you the playbook to defeat Jake Lee he's the only person um who has figured out that you got to take him out at the knees and he like had the whole playbook for that was just excellent emotional he like made Jake show his hand um just perfect stuff from top to bottom and then on day six um I thought Wagner versus Anze was quite good loved Keno versus Thatcher another match for sickos good shit um and then I also really liked Jack versus Jake even if I didn't agree with the um the result there I did not agree with the draw there for Jake when he had just drew with Masa and that had a lot more meaning I'm assuming there's some like tournament math that they were trying to figure mm-hmm. out and like whatever, but I didn't love that Jake didn't get a win in his home, like home prefecture. I didn't agree with that. Um, but the match was still really, really good and well built and like leaves you like with a lot of questions about like future stuff between them for like GLG purposes. So I liked it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, Jake is someone who has been on a tear in this N1, having the N1 I would have dreamed up for him a couple of months ago in terms of what I would want to see him doing. Aside from the second draw he picked up with Jack, I wouldn't have booked that, but still. Otherwise, I think that he's having a tremendous N1. Yeah, I think you said every single match I had on my list. <laughs> plus, a, plus a couple more, actually, um, which was which was kind of cool. But um, yeah, I, I could read out some of my notes as well. Um, night one, same thing. Um, my top match was Nakajima versus Manabusoya. That it's really is a uh, match of the tournament contender. Can I call it that? A, uh, a mot C. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought this was really, really wonderful. It was just perfectly constructed match. Nakajima ripping Soya apart. And then um, that pivotal moment where Soya reverses the vertical spike. And it's just, it's really, really good. The crowd was just going insane for Soya. And that set the whole tone for the tournament. This was the very first match of the tournament. Um, and I thought it set the whole tone. And Soya is not only still in uh, B block currently, but he actually has the easiest road to the top. All he has to do now is win his two matches, um, not dependent on anybody else. He just needs to win his and he's good. He can go through to the finals. So um, he's in the best position, even if he's not the block leader right now. So definitely be keeping an eye on Soya. And um, yeah, all of his matches have been really, really good, but especially check out this one because this one is just the perfect set up for who Manabusoya is right now, why you should be paying attention. And Nakajima makes him look like a million bucks. He sells beautifully, um, as well as gives as good as he gets. So the the Nakajima way. Um, for night two, I had a lot, um, but I really, really liked uh, Shizaki and Anzai. I second everything you say, um, Alicia, and I second it for Shizaki and Wagner as well, that this is just you know, Shizaki. Um, I love how he plays, not really plays this role, but you can really feel him as the oldest in the tournament. Like the, he's, he's the guy, he's this experienced veteran. He's, you know, has a chip on his shoulder, but he always has, like, it's not anything new. This isn't like, 
what are we talking about with Okada now where he's like this mean fuck them kids like grizzled veteran <laughs> this isn't a change in his character this is just Shiazaki um and this is Shiazaki being Shiazaki which I thought was wonderful and I love watching how everybody interacts with Anzai this you know brand new all Japan green boy with so much uh presence and so much fighting spirit and just so much potential and it's been really really cool to see how everyone interacts with him and um Shiazaki definitely had one of my favorite matches with him for sure and I don't mean to interrupt you but I just want to add to what you just said about Shiazaki being Shiazaki he has had one of the most significant gear changes going into this N1 which I'm obsessed with I feel like this is going to be like a 15 minute like rant going into I am Noah part like three right at the end of the year but I just want to highlight this like how fucking cool it is that he's no longer in something akin to like a Misawa cosplay like he's no longer doing that he's no longer in like the emerald greens um and doing something that feels very connected to I am Noah in a way that is obsessed with the GHC, right? Like, and obsessed with being at the top of this promotion. This is the most authentic he has looked in a long time to what he likes in his style. Um, a fan artist did his tights, and it's in, like, that comic book style that he really loves. He likes superheroes. Um, so it's in that style. And then his jacket, to me, is very August D. Um, and, like, Suga, like, BTS, like, the stuff that he likes. That's very much what it is. And coming off the um d-day tour like that's to me that's a lot of what the fashion was on the august d tour was like a jacket like that so i am obsessed with this for him the flower apparently is also like his prefecture flower too which i really liked that detail so all of this stuff that just feels so authentically shiazaki in a way where he has not been able to be so authentic i think in a long time because everything has been about chasing the ghc chasing the idea of being the ace that was denied him for so long I know we can only take so much from the brief interactions that we have with these people, but he was signing stuff on the first day that I was there. And just with the fans, he looked like he kind of had just this very kind of easy manner. He seemed like he was just great at that aspect of the job as well. I mean, I could, yeah, I could talk all day about Shiozaki and how great he is. I think um came across very genuinely in any event. That's so sweet. Yeah, that's always been sort of the impression I've gotten of him as well. And it's just really nice to see. And, and it's been, like I said, it's been a really good tournament for him. It's been really uh, good to see. I also really enjoyed Nakajima versus Wagner. I thought that match was great. I really liked, um, I liked Nakajima's whole story going in <laughs> to this match where he hadn't won a match yet and he was having an absolute meltdown over it like he was having a conniption fit that he lost two matches in a row he still hasn't given on that like he still keeps talking about it he's won all of his matches so far he still won't stop like oh i started from the bottom oh i you know you're gonna watch my comeback victory and i'm gonna please the audience and and, and we'll talk about that in a minute too um because he's he is just milking this. Like, oh, I lost my last two matches. I worried you guys so much. And then he wins this match and he's like, okay, I'm going to help the, I'm going to help the audience now. I'm going to be, I'm going to win and everyone's going to cheer me. Um, and he hasn't mentioned wanting to challenge for the national yet, but I think that's going to be implied. It'd be weird if Nakajima of all people didn't have his eyes on a belt after that um but we will see but I thought that was a really really good match I thought um Wagner looked amazing Mag Wagner's looked amazing all tournament um so we will see how that goes and, and see maybe at the end of September we'll uh 
beginning a match between them. Although I have not given up on Soya pinning Wagner on the last day and getting a national match. match. Yeah, I want that rematch so badly, but we'll see <laughs> if that happens as well. Um, and then, of course, my other favorite match of the night and my match of the tournament so far is Keno versus Inamura. Um, I, it's going to take a lot to top that match. I'm going to be honest uh, with you. That match is about Inamura, but it's also kind of about Kaito Kiyomiya, which is interesting. Um, it's just about Noah as a company and specifically the future of Noah as it stands right now, which is something that Keno's just really, really invested in. And um, you'll notice for about the first 15 minutes or so of this match, Keno won't really look at Inamura, like at all. And there are entire spots where he will not straight up look him in the eye. He won't look at him. There's like this one spot where he straight up starts shouting, like, come on, come at me while looking over Inamura's shoulder. And it's not because he disrespects him. He doesn't dog walk him. He does dog walk him, but he doesn't do it because he disrespects Inamura, he's actually role-playing um, pro wrestling Noah as a company, which sounds weird, but he talks about this um, after the match on the mic and then in the backstages as well. He starts talking about how the company has overlooked Inamura and isn't utilizing him the way that they should be. And they're instead focusing and highlighting on the quote unquote spoiled Kaito Kiyomiya. And he states that the company hasn't been paying attention to Inamura, which means that it's Inamura's job to make them pay attention, just as Keno forced the company to pay attention to him. So that informs the entire match. If you go back to watch it, or if you haven't watched it yet, um, bear that in mind as you watch it, because then you can sort of get this whole picture of Keno trying to force Inamura to make Keno look at him and, and say, make the company look at you. Um, and that's what ends up happening through the matches. Inamura starts forcing Keno's hand and forces Keno to, to really step it up, which brings me to some criticisms that I've seen on this match. And that's that, um, Keno worked over Inamura's ankle, especially with this really cool PFS, like directly to the ankle. It was a really good spot. Um, he works over the ankle the entire match, but he wins with a cross face. And um, I actually understand that criticism. We want everything to sort of add up in a match, but I have a little extra context that might paint the whole picture of that match. And that's Keno debuted that in his match um that was actually a crossface that he developed it's a modified amaplata into the crossface he developed that on his youtube channel it's called the keno special <laughs> and he developed that and ended up needing to use it in this match he had a game plan to take out inamura with the ankle but inamura forced him to change his game plan and forced him to pay attention and forced him to change things so he was forced to debut this brand new finisher um, against Inamura. And that contrasts very starkly with the next night where he fights Yuki Yoshioka and he ends up using that finisher to basically show off Tamara Fuji. <laughs> 
Um, and he he uses that finisher right against the um, ropes to show like, oh, look, I have both of his arms and now Yuki can't reach the ropes. He's using Yuki, Yuki Yoshioka as like an infomercial for, oh, how cool is my new finisher? He doesn't do that with Inamura. He was forced to use it for with Inamura. And that's um, really speaks to Inamura's power in this match. And I just thought it was really good. I went about this match forever, but it's it really is one of my favorites. I encourage you to watch it. I really do. If you haven't watched already and you're listening so please give it a watch after that the next night I really liked Nakajima and Inaba I thought that was fantastic I thought it was really heartbreaking but I also thought that Inaba looked stronger against Nakajima than he ever has um that was their third singles match and it was the first singles match since Inaba started tagging with Masakita Mia which is important to keep in mind because he had a lot more fire and went straight for Nakajima. And um, yeah, he he felt like a threat against Nakajima this time. And I thought that was really, really cool. Um, Nakajima did eventually dismantle him. And that was really heartbreaking. Um, but the crowd was really, really desperate for Inaba to get that win. Um, Inaba right now is out of the tournament because he was suffering a lot of dizziness going into the sixth night, which was really, really sad, but hopefully he is okay. He gets well soon and eventually gets his revenge on Nakashima. Kitami and Inamura, for all the reasons that Alicia stated, I really, really liked Inamura. He's just really talented. And you just guys, you have to be keeping an eye on him. He's really wonderful. And then Kitami is also getting a really, really good tournament run. Um, currently he's right up there with Jake. He's pretty much, he, he could easily make it through to the finals. He's not like tied for first and he needs a little help from Keno. I think he needs to beat Keno and then Keno needs to beat Jake and then he'll make it to the finals, but that could happen. I I'm not counting him out. Um, Shiazaki versus Wagner, I think is like the number one match I would recommend to anybody who's just getting into Noah um to really really get into it i think it's just a really easy match to watch it's really fun it's really exciting um and yeah you guys really summed that one up perfectly uh night five nakajima versus anzai he absolutely murdered that boy um i really really liked that anzai starts out this match sort of um cheeky and with those clean rope breaks and then nakajima proceeds to make him pay for that for the entire rest of the match i thought that was really really good um, and I like Nakajima picking up Anzai at the end and then throwing him out again. It was just really cool. And then I liked um, what you said, Alicia, about him, um, about him comparing himself to Anzai. I thought that was really, really powerful. And I think he even says, like, that's the most praise I can give anybody um, during his backstage comments, which is such a Nakajima thing to say. But it really is true. Um, Keno versus Jack was really good. Jack is just having a fantastic, um, and one, he's having a fantastic year, um, since after facing Wagner, he's really turned it around in his character. And, and I think GLG and Noah as a whole has just been really, really good for him. Um, so the fact that you mentioned like a runner up Geico Kujin, I, I'm, I'm thinking on that. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Mr. Jack Morris, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, Jake versus Kitamiya, phenomenal match. Um, I thought that was the perfect draw. It did make me very salty that they repeated the draw the night after. Uh, I think really it was to keep Keno alive because Keno would have been eliminated if Jake had too many points at that point. Um, so I think it was to keep Keno alive mathematically, but 
then they could have just had Jack lose against Keno. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I thought it was, I, I did think it was a good match. And I liked, I liked Jack and um, Jake too. I thought that was really good. Um, I think when you compare those two, it is really important to watch Jake's face because I do think that Jake showed a lot more against Masa than he did with Jack. Jack clearly is his friend. Um, whereas Masa, you got to see a lot of his anger and um, you got to see him sort of crack throughout the match. And I think that will come into play. And I really, really hope to see a GHC uh, challenge between Masa and Jake, however that comes up, however it comes up. And then my last one was Keno and Thatcher. Um, yeah, I thought that was really good. Um, at, that, at this point, Keno is barely in this tournament <laughs> he's very barely in this tournament so um yeah you're really starting to see kind of like come from behind story here which is why it's really funny that Nakajima's pretending he's also having a come from behind story which he's not he's doing great in this tournament Keno is struggling <laughs> um so it's it's really really funny to see those two sort of compare and talk about each other and Keno is of course talking about his um Keno no Gakuten, which is uh, Keno's big reversal, and that's a parody of Naito. Um, Naito often has what we call um, Naito's come from behind or Naito's big reversal, um, where he he pulls it out from out of nowhere. Um, so Keno has adopted that since losing to Naito, and now, um, and at first it was really ironic, but now um, commentary has started to really adopt that. So now we're starting to see uh, Keno no Gakuten. And that started with this match where he uh, it starts out pretty dominated by Thatcher and then pulls it out towards the end with that big reversal. So that's a good one to keep an eye on as well. Good Sorry, I had a lot of thoughts on this end, <laughs> but it's been really, really good. No, it has been a tremendous tournament, so there's so much to talk about. Jonathan, anything to add to some of that before I pose my question about Maybe not just Geico Kujin, but just in general, some of the newcomers to the tournament beyond um, someone like Wagner, who do we think would be, um, you know, your top choice, I suppose, or maybe someone you haven't been as impressed with. Well, um, I, yeah, I think, I think like Wagner goes without saying, right? Like at this point in time, he's been that good that it's kind of hard to kind of look past him. I think he's going to be involved in this tournament i think in the, the final night i think that at some point there's going to be maybe a score situation i think that they've set the blocks up in such a way that leads to manabu soya defeating him on the final night to establish points control and prevent him from advancing and i think that that's um rachel rachel's uh, crossing their fingers at the moment with regard to that because look it's at that point where i think that like these blocks are meant to be set up in a way that makes sense from a storyline standpoint and everything so his performances have just been yeah it, i could go on and on about this guy but um i i saw him in kirken hall in january on uh, i think it was the 8th of january the show that noah had it was my final show in japan for that trip and like he was signing autographs and stuff and i was like oh will i go and get something signed by wagner oh, i'm not that excited by him kind of thing he's completely turned me around on all of that since um so i think he goes without saying i think soya's performances have been fantastic um from a, a foreigner standpoint i um i wasn't expecting to be um impressed by lance unaway 
and I think that his performance performances have kind of more or less turned me around on him. I think that like the match that he had with Go was pretty good. I didn't expect to be impressed by him at all, um, but he definitely impressed me more than I was expecting to be, especially seeing him live. Um, beyond that, uh, it's been good to see my fellow countrymen do well as far as uh, Adam Brooks goes. It hasn't been kind of yet a standout for him in terms of points by any stretch. I think he's sitting as of right now at two points. I think he's only had the one victory, but he's definitely, I think, shown you a bit more of what he can do. I had the criticism of him before that he doesn't really show you in his Noah matches yet exactly what he can do. I've seen him perform better live, um, but I think he's beginning to show that. I really liked him against Keno. I think that he could stand to have um, a few more chances like that. I, I'd hope that he gets booked beyond this tour as well. Um, outside of that, I'm sure I'm missing someone else as well. It's just the thing with, with this tournament, um, with all the matches that are happening. But um, I think that sort of if I had standout performers, I think I'd have to go with those kind of um, sort of with Nakajima, with Asuya and probably... I think Jack, oh, Jack has been fantastic as well. I think um, this is like his anniversary in Noah as well. This is one, the one year that he's been involved with the company um, since his debut. They kind of put him straight into the deep end there with a match with Kaido to begin with. And I think he's demonstrated as to why they went with him. And I think the storytelling between him and uh, as far as his match goes with Jake, I think that was phenomenal work as well. Um, I think the way that they escalated that without escalating it all of the way considering that they're tag partners and stuff but there's plenty they can go back to there was fantastic um i hope that he's alive until the final night as well uh, i would definitely be backing him as probably their i probably a number two second foreigner after uh wagner which i in in my opinion um you can't really say enough of that and i hope they have plans for him sort of after the tournament what about you, Alicia? Who have been your uh, top performers coming into this tournament? Who is your top visitors and uh, people who haven't impressed you? I'll just focus on the new folks because I think my top performers probably goes without saying based mm. off of what matches I chose. But um, my the as in far as far as the newcomers um, or the, some of the Geico Kujin, you know, foreigners and such. I mean, Wagner is is sort of a given, but I think that Jack is tremendous. And like Jonathan just touched on, um, has shown why Noah went with him. Um, I think I said last year, perhaps, that Jack would wind up sort of shocking everyone because he, he came across like he would be a quick learner. And he really has been. He's like a completely different wrestler in the span of a year. And so much of that has come from being over at Noah and training in the dojo and training with certain people and it shows in everything he does. But where Jack, I think, is going to, I think, continue to shock all of us is that he's actually going to end up being an incredible character worker. And he's demonstrating that through his work with GLG and he's demonstrating that within this tournament and he's only going to get better at it. Um, so that's really cool. So I've been really impressed by Jack and I think he only has more to show us i do like adam brooks quite a bit hasn't had a huge tournament but he has a good presence i've liked his match with keno also as jonathan referenced i thought that was very good um i think he'll be booked through the next tour at least after um the end one so that's good i think we'll be able to see a little bit more of him i've, I've really enjoyed him 
Lance Anawai. I knew he would be good based off what I've seen of him. Um, so that's not been a problem at all. Like I even thought his match with Yuma Anzai was actually a, a really good match. I think my my thing is though that um I did not think that he that he should have gotten a Wagner win and a Shiazaki win. That's a that's two massive wins. The Shiazaki match to me, uh there was such a skills difference in between the two of them that him beating Shiazaki didn't actually feel believable. So it fell very flat to me. So yeah, I was like, I have no problem with um with Lance. I would love for him to come back. I think that people have responded really well to him. I think he's a good wrestler. Um, but I didn't agree with those two big wins in a tournament like this. I don't even think they've had the proper impact that beating Wagner, the national champion, and then Shiazaki should have because I don't think that he really earned those wins. I don't know. That's just my feeling on that. But I just I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gone that direction. I guess. The only person that I really haven't connected with and just haven't enjoyed is, is Yuki Yoshioka from Dragon Gate. I think he's, and I don't, you know, you can DM me about this. I won't answer the DM. How's that? I I think that he's been out of his depth, frankly, in this tournament. There's been some moments where it's been like, oh, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. Um, I I thought that he had um, a, a pretty decent match with Jake. There was some good stuff, I think, actually in the Jake match. I thought that his match with Adam Brooks was not good. Um, so I just, um, I don't know. I, I think that the what I keep landing on is he looks like he's out of his depth in this caliber of, of tournament. And that's not to upset any Dragon Gate fans or Yoshioka Yoka fans. I just don't think that um, this is the tournament for him, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to piggyback right off of what you said. Um, so I definitely thought Yuki Yoshioka was maybe like two years into his career um, watching this tournament and then I found out he's been wrestling for seven years and that really really surprised me um, so that's take that as you will I thought that he was just a little more experienced than Yuma Anzai um, which isn't saying much because Anzai is barely like he's about to hit a year in like a month but um, yeah like Yuki Yoshioka looks like a green boy when he shouldn't be and he looks very out of his depth um which again as I pointed out earlier was a plot point for his match with Keno and um it just hasn't worked he didn't know how to communicate with Adam Brooks at all like in the ring like they just were having completely separate matches um and it just it just did not hit um, yeah, that's that's sort of where I'm at with uh, Yuki Yoshioka. I, I've seen some of his Dragon Gate matches, and I thought he was fine. Um, but I think in Dragon Gate, he's a little more experienced with everybody, um, and and he has better chemistry with them. Whereas when you put him in a new situation, I don't know if he knows quite how to adapt, and that's something that he really needs to work on. So that's my take on Yuki Yoshioka. But yeah, I thought the um, obviously the other. Um, young up-and-comer visitor Yuma Anzai he's doing wonderful uh we talk about him a lot on Talking Triple Crown so go check that out if you want all our takes on Yuma Anzai but he he is really really something special uh yeah Adam Brooks I've enjoyed since actually I saw him live in DPW back in December I really enjoyed him I texted Alicia that he should give Noah a try so I was absolutely elated to see him in this tournament and I've really enjoyed him I like the match with uh Keno I think he plays a really 
he plays a really good heel, but there are no heels and faces in Noah. So um, the fans have really taken to him as sort of this Sundere character, which I thought was really fun. It's utterly incredible, yeah. Once he announced that his favorite food was donuts, the fandom went insane because he has such gap moe where it's like, oh, this rough, rude foreigner likes sweets. He likes donuts. So it's just really funny. Like he, But he has a really good natural character I really like. Uh, what were you saying, Jonathan? Oh, have you seen the photos of him with fans? Yes, I have. He's really, he's really charming. He's a really nice like, guy. I actually have an eight he, by ten of him. He kills the the heel stuff immediately as soon as he gets one of those photos with the fans, and I, I love that because it's like, I, I don't know, it, it's just such a, a thing of contrast. I think works well with Japanese wrestling, like to have these guys that have all these different sides to their characters. There's no soul evil soul good guy there's always these like things in between and that just comes across so well and yeah i i had hoped to meet him on this um on this one when i was over there but it just didn't happen like no didn't have him out to sign anything at that point or i just narrowly missed it so that sucked but yeah no um definitely someone who i hope they book him for more tours after this yeah, because of that like contrast in his character, people really want to see him tag with Keno, who has like the same sort of like not a heel, not a face, but like this huge contrast in his on mode and off mode. Um, so yeah, everybody wants to sort of see that come to fruition. And now we have that win over Keno. So we'll see what happens. But I really hope I believe his visa is good through the end of October. Uh, so hopefully he will stick around for a little bit. And then I um, also second what you said about Lance Anaway. I like him. He's good. Um, but I don't think he has a huge impact. Um, and I think there's some things he needs to work on with his character to really make that impact. And I, I was very disappointed in the Shiyazaki win. Like it just sort of took the wind out of my sails. But um, yeah, I don't dislike him by any means. Like He's a good wrestler. I just don't know if he's a great wrestler. So those are my takes. Yeah super fair so to wrap up our n1 stuff so we can move into the g1 um let's give super super quick predictions who do you think is winning the n1 uh dr jonathan so i was on podcast with dylan a while ago just on um as far as the east lariat went we recorded out our predictions and all of mine are up in smoke i i did a terrible job with pickums it seems but this been it's been an unpredictable tournament in its way um, so I, I think it comes down to really three of them. I think it comes down to Goshiozaki, Nakajima, and Keno. And those were the predictions that we had. I, for what it's worth, went with Go. I thought, based on a promo that I saw Go cut um, on, at One Night Dream when he went into how he was going to win the tournament, the way in which he said that, the emotion there and the way in which it came across with the definitive i am noah that i thought they're building to something there with him being in the mix at the end of the tournament and then the way they've booked it since has me questioning everything so um dylan had a great idea in turn on that episode in terms of this idea or this notion of maybe nakajima going through winning the thing picking up that GHC title and defending it in January against Kento. Um, basically, they need to get a big crowd for that anniversary show, the idea of they're doing that rematch and everything like that. I I couldn't help but buy into that that little bit. But 
we had three people. We had three different predictions. I think Keno is going to be in the mix there as well. So I'm kind of my my predictions are up in smoke. I went with Go. I kind of have to stick with that just to continue. Maybe the humiliation of being utterly wrong when he's not even in the mix on the final day or something. But that's who I predicted. I can't really shift horses. I can't change horses just yet. You just made me think seventy three thoughts at once because. <laughs> Give us your top 11 of your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) How many people are in this tournament? Is it how many many, um, competitors? I think it's... I don't know. I'm stuck. You you put me in the Budokan, Jonathan. I'm stuck in the Budokan (laughs) and... um, Or wherever we're going to be in... Ariaki, yeah. Ariaki Coliseum. And I do not want... My problem, I think, hinges on... I don't want Kento Miyahara having to, to come... No, I don't want that. I, I agree. I agree yeah. for what it's worth. Yeah, I don't want it. I don't want Kento Miyahara. I might, I might be the sole person who wants to see that after that first match that they had. I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, match, just not I want another match. Not, not under those circumstances. Not with Kento Miyahara having to walk in as the challenger for that. That would, um, that would kill my soul. Apparently, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so going back to the this this tournament, I agree. I mean, I think. With Shiyazaki, keeping in mind, he has also not won a tournament, a NOAA tournament at yeah. this level. He has not won. So it's something he's, um, it's, you know, he doesn't have, right, in terms of his accolades, NOAA accolades. So he's he's looking for that. I do think that the costume change and how he is framing I am NOAA right now is significant. So going into this tournament, I definitely thought it would be Keno or Shio based off of how both of them be- are behaving and how both of them are behaving with our current GHC heavyweight champion, Jake Lee. However, I am going to say Masa is winning until Rachel tells me it's mathematically impossible. So until that time, Masa is going to win because Kento told him to get to the top of Noah as quickly as possible. And Masa is going to do that. So Masa is still my pick until it is mathematically impossible. Well, I am happy to tell you it is still mathematically possible. It is very mathematically possible and it's going to happen. He's going to the finals against Nakajima. It's going to happen. I'm sure of it. And he's going to win and it's going to be amazing. Um, and he's winning the GHC too. No, um, really seriously, my pick is Masa Kitamiya, 100%. Um, I think that Keno has a really good story going right now. Um, but I really, really, and I was telling Alicia this earlier, I really like the idea of Masa beating Keno and then Keno beating Jake, even though Keno's eliminated now, he beats Jake so Masa can go through. I think that's a beautiful story. Um, it really speaks to their friendship and their relationship together um, that has persisted through years and years and years. So um, yeah, that's what I want. And I obviously really big aggression fan really want to see masa and nakajima in the finals so masa kinamiya for the n1 and potentially for the ghc that's what i'm going for excellent so let's move into the uh the g1 so jonathan as we've uh now teased multiple times you were there for the g1 climax finals did you follow the whole tournament by chance and if you did um what were your big standout matches that you would recommend to people so no, I didn't follow the whole thing. I ended up, I, I followed up to a point as much as I could, but I always have some kind of drop off with the G1. I've never been able to follow the entire thing. It's always too many dates or always just that little bit too much for me to keep a track of. I 
said I would try to catch up and get back to it when it comes to the 2017 G1. <laughs> I wanted to go back and revisit that great match between Okada and Suzuki, which I've never seen in its entirety. And so that's on my catch-up list. So I've got a big backlog that I'm never going to fulfill as far as this G1 goes. But um, I enjoyed Kaido Kiyomiya's work. I enjoyed his first few matches. I liked the story of him going up against their younger guys um, as far as everything that was involved with that. Um, and then I kind of uh, lapsed as other tournaments were beginning and as this trip was getting closer. Um, we also had a Japanese exchange student come and stay with us during this time. And so it was like, I put on a little bit of wrestling, you know, I, I had um, a little bit of progress on so she could watch that and she could, she'd never seen progress before. So um, that was cool. But with every other show that was happening, this kind of fell down that little bit and I figured, well, by the time the finals are there and I mean, they're in attendance, I'll play some catch up anyway. Um, so yeah, having the N1 clash with the second to, or third to final night of the G1 last block action night, I believe it was, um, didn't help, but, uh, I, I really, I, I think my main wreck from this entire thing just has to be that final match with Naito and Okada with, um, the other caveat to that being that I think the match with Naito and Zack Sabre Jr. I think played into that really well because you have uh, Rachel's going to have to remind me of the the phrase they used earlier. The Naito no Gyakuten. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so I try to write down as I try to write down as much Japanese as I can to try to pick up on every phrase as it goes, and I always fail at the time, but. Naito has in that match a fantastic example of that in that he goes for what looks like the satellite DDT and ends up in a roll-up that defeats Zack and then he pulls out that same move against Okada during their the sumo arena match and I thought that was going to be it I thought that was going to be the finish and it wasn't and um in that match you get a fantastic moment where they announce that they've just hit 30 minutes and I turned to my friend and went, there's no way this has been 30 minutes. This has flown by. I thought they said 13 initially. Um, they made for what felt like not very uh, long time, which you, can, you can't always say that about New Japan's matches. And I think in this instance, they work the formula best. Um, I love just the exchange of network, like as well, like in terms of like they, you know, Okada starts working on Naito's neck. Naito starts doing the same thing as a, means of getting back at him the escalation i yeah i can rave about this match it was one of my favorite ones all year alicia you're uh i believe you tweeted that a naito okada match was your bat signal so you watched this match um what did you think of it i felt like an alien because i didn't like it as much as their last three matches they had together sorry dr jonathan i'm sure seeing it live was like completely tremendous and I'd have a completely different opinion if I was in um sumo the sumo arena with you guys but yeah I thought I thought it was a, I thought it was a good match but and good for Naito and Okada is like a completely different like definition of good right but to me it didn't match the level of like the was it last year or the year before when they had like three singles matches in a single year last year last yeah. year it's like, such a problem that we're going, hey, is it last year or the year before? There's yeah, something like that, there with the all overlaps. I've been in meetings since 8.40 this morning and awake since 4.30. So I am fading. But 
Yes, that was last year. And I liked a lot of those more than I liked this one. And that's all it was. Like, it, I thought it was a good match. I did not think that it was um, rave worthy for me. And I'm a huge fan of that that relationship, that rivalry. I've, 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 we have a podcast episode where I talk about that rivalry and how much it means to me. I, I adore them. I just, I didn't like really hold water for me after I watched it. However, I probably need to give it like a couple weeks, watch it removed from the hype and then see where it really lands for me. That might change something, but I think I've watched better Okada Naito's to be sure. Um, especially if you go back even further into there their rivalry yeah but otherwise like the g1 is a contentious thing for me the g1 used to be like very important to me was probably the first thing i fell in love with about new japan when i was a newer fan the concept of a tournament like this like that blew my mind that this happens every year oh my god that was like absolutely outstanding to me and like i remember you know some of my first g1s and such and it's really like jonathan said like you can't make it through a g1 now neither can i but it's weird that at times there I used to be able to. Um, so my my favorite G one match this year was Kenta versus Grayoka. That was an excellent match. Yeah, that was an excellent. Oh, I love excellent, that match. Excellent, excellent match. Followed by one of like Kenta's best backstages of the of the tour, let alone the year. So yeah, that was that was fun for me. Um, I also did like the fuckery of like Kenta and Tai Chi and then that carrying over into like that insane um, multi-man they had towards the end of the tour with Kanemaru being their like referee for the cheers from the fans again between Kenta and Tai Chi. I really like that about the G1. And oh, I watched a little bit of Kaito. He did a good job. I was proud of him. That's it. That's my I G1. Yeah. Watch yeah. Kenta versus Grayoka. That was great. It was. It was really good. And everybody was everybody's wrong anybody who talks about that match is wrong except us um that match is so good no it really was it's just it's so clear how much they love working with each other it's such a fun match there's so much bad takes about those two in particular that this match couldn't have been anything other than the congealing of how wrong everyone is about those two performers yeah exactly like it's a it's a really good litmus test for anyone so uh, I'll go straight over uh, my my Kenta matches I I did like Kenta and Okada I, I liked Kenta and Okada too um I thought that was a fun match oh Kenta Okada was really yeah. good they I also and it was robbed in in the way that like people were talking about that it has had discourse below what it deserves my favorite okay speaking of cage match sorry we have to do this now um my favorite cage match comment about kenta and okada was saying that both men took their formulas and squished them together but like isn't that what wrestling is uh, and i and that's what i liked about this match was that they just really like each other they liked working together they played their characters in their match and they played it against each other because that's what wrestling does and i i really enjoyed it i thought this was a really good match but as far as those um those were my my kenta recommendations and then i did watch kaito's run as well um loved kaito versus suji i thought that was just a really good strong showing um suji was really arrogant until he wasn't um and then and that was just like sort of the big introduction of like kaito being like this is what you're dealing with and that was really cool. Um, my favorite match of the tournament was uh, Kaito and Umino. 
I really, really love that. I That Muto and Shono tribute drove me insane. I was so excited. Like, if you know me at all, I really, really like uh, Muto and Shono's rivalry. And so seeing that sort of playing out in uh, Umino, having um, gone to Chono before the tournament for uh, mentorship. And then, of course, Kaito has that huge relationship with Muto. It was just really exciting. Um, so I really enjoyed that whole thing. Uh, Kaito and Sonata was also really good. I really liked that Sonata pulled out that victory at the literal last second. It felt like a really good um, callback to the Okada Sonata Classic from G1, I believe, 2019 where Sonata wins at the very, very last second. And I thought I thought it was just a good, really clever way because I feel like anyone who watches that match, you're going to think about Okada when you watch Kaito in that match. And it was a good way to keep them in the same sentence. You know, like it was just a really good, really good thing. So I like that match a lot. There's been some, some interesting things uh, to be sure. So... Similar to what I asked before about Noah, Jonathan, do you have a favorite G1 that you remember, a favorite year? Yes, this one's pretty straightforward and easy as far as 2017 goes. Um, That was the one where I was just digging at the time into flight prices and stuff after Kevin Kelly just one day. I thought offhandedly, in retrospect, it was quite the good salesman technique. He said, look, if anyone's looking to get here for the finals, there's still plenty of tickets available. And uh, as far as, you know, times of year to go, it's kind of muggy in Tokyo, but it's still a good time of year to get out here. And I was like looking into it going, damn it, can I afford this? Talking to my friend about it. He's like, yeah, I'll put you up if you do come over here. I'm like, well, I can't not do this. So on a few days notice, kind of put together the trip there. I flew back just in time to get ready to go to work and to mark some students work. Um, not the ideal way to go into class, but um, so 2017 holds a lot of great memories for me. Um, they had that great match with Okada and Minoru Suzuki, which ended in a draw. You had obviously the final, like everyone's spoken about that at some point. A lot of people preferred the match that they had the year before that, but I think this one actually kind of blows it out of the water as far as match quality goes and some insane bumps on the table and such. I was slightly bummed at the time with the result, but Naito winning fit perfectly within the storyline of the day. Um, some of the matches there as well, as far as Kota Ibushi's return to New Japan at the time, um, that was a big deal back then. And uh, I think that was his formal reintroduction to New Japan. Before that, he was wrestling as Tiger Mask W and everyone knew who was him, but the question as to when's he going to come back as himself. Um, so this was the tournament in which they did that. Um, and outside of that, it's just kind of a, a good G1 as far as uh, match quality goes. Like you've got uh, Kenny Omega versus Okada, number three. It's my personal favorite um, out of all of them. I was there for it. And basically the audience section I was in was the, kind of most divided out of all of them um so that was cool to watch live uh it stands out probably as my personal favorite for the i I don't know live bias is an interesting one i hear people talk about that all the time and it's like i don't personally believe live bias exists i think if you enjoy something as subjective as wrestling and something that makes you enjoy it more is not a bias it's a criterion so i I enjoyed this one the most. I think it's the one that will always stand out to me the most for all those kind of reasons going into it. Um, 
whole bunch more stories out of that but i could talk about that one um for an entire podcast really uh what about you for me it is definitely 2016 not because of the winner not because of the final at all the final is actually like truly fucking weird <laughs> in 2016 yeah. but yeah it's like go to kenny omega <laughs> oh yeah it was wasn't it <laughs> yes but like that doesn't matter to me why it's my favorite is, is and this is kind of like a cop-out but like it's mara fuji's in it katsuhiko's in it weirdly like one of my favorite matches at tour is katsuhiko nagata um this is when me and nagata were on like better terms i love that match i still think about it um, but I loved it. Like, I, I loved Marafuji's run through that. I loved Katsuhiko's run through that. And you get the most incredible Noah versus New Japan match on the, like, final night of the G1 tour that ends in, like, Shibata and um, Shiozaki teeing off on each other. And, like, it's just fucking madness. That is an amazing match. That is worth the whole tournament just to get to that that match. Masa's there. Oh god, it's great. It's such a good match. It's so good. I love it so much. That's a great, great, great run. That that whole thing. Um, but I do still really love the 2017 final because that's when Naito wins for the second time. And it's a great match between him and um between him and Kenny. And then Naito gets to win. And I still think about that match because it was a good match. So I would still say 2016 that was my favorite. I just have an attachment. I still go back and watch matches from that one. Although there's been like, there's lots of great G1 matches. When I was still like a New Japan fan, I would go back and watch a lot of G1s, even if I didn't get to experience them live because there's just so many tremendous matches that come out of them. So yeah, but 2016 for uh, the Noah stuff and that insane brawl that Shibata and uh, Shiozaki caused because they're insane. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of great moments in that one. Um such that when I was writing about the Noah New Japan working relationship and kind of how much everyone looks at that as a sour kind of period, I had to note that match as a no, there was good stuff in there as well and worth re- revisiting. I actually think um, me and Rachel keep joking about this because if I guess, um, I don't know, maybe because maybe because we just recorded a podcast about Destiny, so we were talking about like the crowd getting heat with the wrestlers, but there is such crowd heat in the 2016 G1 from the New Japan's New Japan fans to the Noah wrestlers, which is like kind of awesome. I think that going into 2024, we should bring back a little hatred. Yeah. Less altogether, more hatred. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Should bring back that vibe specifically of that insane match from the, the 2016 G1 final between Noah and New Japan. That's how we should that's how we should feel in 2024 next year is going to be all apart again instead of all together again we're, yeah. we're going to be all apart um, yeah that, that's really well said um I also really like that Nakashima Nagata match if uh, anyone listening hasn't seen it please do check it out it, it's really good um my favorite is 2019 bar um hands down for uh, those of you who don't know I'm a huge huge Kota Ibushi fan um, so that match or that whole tournament just means a lot to me. Um, but it, it's really good in general. You see um, Kenta and Moxley show up in New Japan for the first time, yep. and they both have this parallel story going on in separate blocks about them finding their place and finding happiness after the WWE sucked it out of them. And um, that's just a beautiful, like, it's a really beautiful run for both of them. It's really just um, heartening. And it gave me a lot of hope in 
my life in general. I was in a really hard place during the 2019 um, G1. I just moved and it, it was just hard. And watching those two sort of have that like huge dominant, they like both had like a five match winning streak or something like that. And just watching them find their happiness match by match by match was so meaningful to me. And then of course, um, my all-time fave Kota Ibushi won. And it was just, it was a lot. And it was just 2019 is really, really special um, to me. So this year has been quite controversial, or at least Twitter makes it feel very controversial. So (laughs) I guess just if you can, quick thoughts, like general thoughts on the tournament, especially like, what did you think, Jonathan, about the four block layout in the single elimination tournament at the end of all this? Like, does it work for you? How do you feel about some of these like booking choices? Um, Who was your original pick to win? That sort of thing. Okay, so um, to... I'll, I'll start with your last question first. Um, that's the easiest one. I actually got this one right. I predicted Naito. I thought it would come down to... I thought it would come down to Naito and Kaito, though, because then you have a nice dueling chant and one that's very, very close. Um, but basically, I thought that the kind of story that they were going to tell was very close to the one that they ended up doing, which was that Naito was going to again come from behind again try to uh have a comeback after they stack the deck against him that little bit and again um win i thought it as an overall g1 i thought it was a good one i'm not personally a fan of the four block kind of um and then going into the elimination round um kind of method i think that for one that's a little harder to follow for me personally than simply having two blocks where you have x amount of points and then a finals at the last day and i that's just how i approach it i know a lot of people thought that the new uh kind of approach of having more blocks freshen things up and that hard to follow and it's also the same kind of format as what the soccer world cup had this year and i may be a little bit salty because australia got eliminated in the way that we did in that elimination round but um, yeah, it just doesn't do it for me as much as simply having, uh, you know, an A block, a B block, lots of competitors in each, and then eventually a winner. Though I understand if you're going to have this many competitors, that it is something where you need the four blocks. I would probably rather they have fewer competitors and kind of get it down back to A block and B block. I, I like the year that the N1 was four blocks. I think that was 2021 where they had... Mm-hmm four and one blocks and it sort of worked rather well for that format i think the the g1 is being like a big over the top huge tournament with lots of different players to it and the other tournaments is kind of being your smaller ones that have fewer people but generally kind of uh, more consistency so it's not how i think of the g1 um i did also for my my taste my approach is going to be different to other people's i was going into this thing having booked tickets having purchased flights and looking forward to being there there was the kind of matches i was looking forward to kind of seeing live and the kinds of experiences i was hoping to get out of that versus what they were going for i was looking forward to seeing kaito versus naito i kind of bought into that and i wanted to see kaito have a bigger role in those shows while i was there um then ended up being the case and kind of there's a lot of i mean i'm still not in favor of the sorts of burials of this that I've seen online as far as Twitter goes, but I, I think you said it best there, Alicia, and f- so far as 
Twitter makes things seem controversial, whether or not that means that they are is a whole different thing. And um, definitely some of the sourness about this G1 was blown out of proportion as far as all that went. But I, I definitely would have rather have seen Kaito in some of those final blocks or some of the final positioning there. I, I wanted to see my live Okada versus Kaito match, damn it, and I didn't get it. So there was that. Um, they just know they'll reel me back in next year as well. So I guess they, you know, if I get to make this trip again, I guess that they always know that. So that's unfortunate. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the tournament overall. I don't think it was as good as uh, perhaps the N1 has been so far. I think we'll inevitably compare the two because both are happening at the same damn time. Um, and there's that overlap, but for what it's worth, I enjoyed the start of it. I enjoyed the finals. I think that some part toward the latter part was kind of where it was harder to keep up with, and I, I lost the desire to do so. But um, as far as it goes, you know, not as good as last year's. I thought it better though than some of the the Twitter discourse had it. Yeah, that sounds about correct, and. Yeah, how do I how do I address so many interesting things that you brought up in this? I mean, I, I completely agree with you that and, and here's the thing, like full transparency, even in like a good year, um, I'm probably not gonna watch a full G1. Um, I'm gonna be watching the N1 and Royal Road, which is happening right now. And frankly, I think Royal Road is having a much better tournament than the G1, I think, probably had overall. And I think a big part of that, and this is where I think some of the criticism that we're seeing on Twitter is valid. This is a bloated tournament. They need to get rid of the new format that is, I find baffling and and totally confusing to follow, which makes me completely unlikely to follow it. Even if there were more people in it that I really wanted to follow. I essentially have a wall calendar that I write like my life into, but also the wrestling I need to watch. I write (laughs) Kenta's name in on the days where he has matches for on a regular month, but also for something like the G1. So that's where like my priority is going to be. But even if there were more people that I wanted to follow in this, the way that they have the blocks now and the fact that there's like 30 people in it, like that's that's insane. And it's not like they're they're filling this with 30 really, really uber talented people. There are so many foreigners in that tournament who have no right to be there. And like, we're just going to call a spade a spade on that. You can also DM me about that. I'm not going to answer. I know I'm right. So like, that's... That's just it. There's just, there's no reason to have that many people there and so many untalented, undeserving foreigners taking up space. It's just too much. It's out of control. Um, They will never win me back to even trying a full G1, doing this four block layout, 30 people, single elimination tournament thing. I didn't even think the 10 minute caps on the matches helped. 20 minutes, I believe. 20 minutes? I even thought that some of the ones I watched where, um, like, they felt like they were two fucking hours long. Which one was it? I think it was Kenta versus um, Tongaloa. And I'm not really interested in burying him. I know that he had an injury, and I don't think he's come back the same from that injury. But, like, my God, did that match feel fucking long. So, whatever. The point is... I'm glad you picked up on that, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, they it was weird. They put him right back into his first experience back with New Japan was putting him right back in the tournament and watching live especially, he looked ginger out there. He looked like he was in pain. He did not look like himself. And like I've watched him at his prime as a tag champion. I know what he looks like when he's on. Like he just didn't look good. There were just too many people in there where like he didn't need to be there looking as not okay coming off of that injury. Like too many undeserving foreigners. It's just not 
it's not good. Um, since you brought it up, I'll talk about Kaito here because we were going to ask about Kaito anyway. The the reaction to Kaito has been baffling, to say the least. Did I think he would go further? Sure, of course. Did I necessarily think that he would get in front of Okada again? No. And I didn't necessarily want him to either because I didn't necessarily want them to do... You know, we got really fucking lucky with the amount of Okada Kaito that we got so far. I don't want that story to reach a fever pitch already and it's only August, right? Like I want that to to build on its own. So I wasn't really expecting that either, though a lot of people seem to think that this was going to be them definitely in the finals together. So I get that. But at the same time, that wasn't what I was looking for. To me, us sending over our young ace to your company is so that A, I don't have to watch him at AEW, which is a small blessing for me. B, uh-huh. I take this as we are sending you Kaito Kiyomiya, our young ace, our former GHG heavyweight champion, so that he can learn new skills completely on his own in a completely new environment in front of crowds he's never wrestled in front of, in front of all kinds of different venues. And learn these new skills and and take these new experiences and bring that back to one place and one place only, which is pro wrestling Noah. That's all. I don't actually give a shit if he wins your tournament or if he makes it to your your finals or your semifinals. I don't care. I don't care at all. I also don't trust your bookers to book him well based on how everyone fights and and like tooth and nail over the state of, of G1 booking every single year. I have to watch this discourse play out on my Twitter feed and everyone's unhappiness about how the, the G1 is booked. Everyone's unhappiness with just how New Japan is going, you know? So for me, I don't really care how this played out because what was important was that Kaito's name was in the press every single day, multiple articles every single day, which is what Abema wants, which is what Noah wants, right? That's important. So he's getting the experience. He's going to bring that back to Noah. His name's in the press every day. People seemed rather impressed by him that like, you know, he, he garnered a lot of new fans that were excited to see Kaito he also is a, is a much better wrestler than everyone he encountered on that tour. Even the, the Rewa 3, right? He's better than them. That might be controversial, but he's better than them. He is a well-trained wrestler as just, just as a wrestler, but also as a character, as a performer, his presence. Kaito is that guy. He comes from the training to me, in my opinion. You can disagree with me. That's fine. That DM I will answer. He showed up. He showed everybody up and he picked up the experience he was meant to. And his name was in the press every day. That to me is mission accomplished. I don't care if he wins your tournament. I don't care how you book your tournament. That has nothing to do with what Kaito is there to do. Right. So then what the, the discourse to me becomes is, you know, people saying, well, now it looks like Kaito can't politic, which is like, you have no idea what he does anywhere um, behind the scenes. You have no idea what he's doing. And then people saying that like, Noah looks like a B plus player like the minor leagues it's weird that you hold that opinion of Noah because to me it just sounds like there are a lot of people who are really just New Japan fans waiting for New Japan to quote-unquote get good again to be back baby to for it to be good in the way that they want it to be good again so they're tolerating watching Noah and also All Japan 
And so their their investment is not there in NOAA and All Japan. And that's why you feel like they're B plus players compared to the company that you're really invested in. So that's where the discourse sort of leads me because I don't care how they book their G1. Kaito didn't come out of this losing stock to me because I never expected him to be booked into the finals of somebody else's tournament who you guys are constantly yelling about can't book their own tournaments. Is that insane? Is that harsh? No, so. absolutely not. No. no, I don't, I don't think it's harsh at all. I mean, I, okay. Admittedly, I cried when Ren Narita um, defeated Kaito Kiyomiya, but that's because I'm invested in Kaito Kiyomiya and I like him um, and I wanted to see him do well. And yeah, like, but I, did I really, I didn't expect him to make the final. I did expect him to go, you know, into their little single elimination world cup, whatever tournament, because I wanted to see him there, but I don't think he looked like a geek or whatever people are saying. And it's, it's just weird to me that like, everybody was convinced that Kaito Kiyomiya was going to sign to New Japan after this tournament. Like they were convinced. Well, like, because they're oh, not fans so of popular. Noah. Yeah, there they're you go. Fans of New Japan. They just want the guy that they thought looked cool in the beginning because he had that big win against um, Yota Suji. They just wanted that guy to sign to the place that they actually want to watch wrestling. Like, that's the only exactly. way that I can take it is that you don't actually want to be watching Noah you want New Japan to go back to being the New Japan you want it to be so you're tolerating watching Noah Which not is, ever yeah. putting together that these are two very se separate companies two completely different worlds in terms of cultures in terms of history it's weird to me that anyone could look at a promotion and be like that's that's a, a minor leaguer. Even if you're looking down your nose at a place like BJW that has an entirely separate culture to the other promotions in Japan. Like, how dare you? That's not right. That's why like the whole like majors versus indie thing, like that discussion to me just like doesn't have any, like it just doesn't make any sense to me because like you're just, you're looking down your nose at a, at a company that has its, its own history, its own culture that has nothing to do with New Japan. It's a very, very WWE mentality if we're being completely it's, honest. Yeah, it's, it's a Western Western mentality that does not fit in a Japanese product or Japanese company because like Kaito came up through and chose Noah. That was the company he opted to start his career with and based off of his experience of having certain people as his heroes, certain people as his goals and kind of um, encapsulates what he stands for if he wanted to be with new japan in the japanese system he would have started with new japan's dojo he would have made his way up through there that's who they invested and that's always going to be the guys that they will push it's, they don't generally sign outsiders they don't generally bring them in and look i i enjoyed um him versus suji and i think people also need to look at performance in these things is very important from a japanese standpoint as far as how do people come across during the matches themselves? How do people perform? Whose eyes do they get? And kind of how do they stack up against people in these matches? Are they competitive? And I think all of his matches were. I don't think... I mean, a lot of the discourse surrounding um, supposedly Okada squashing Kaito in that match that they had, like that did mm. not seem that way to me at all. He was competitive no. in that match. He don't get me started. Comeback. Yeah, was... no, we, we've been flying that flag. You, We have... Oh, I heard the episode and loved <laughs> Yes, heard the episode yeah. and loved it as far as that, that went. And it was an excellent kind of um, point made there. And 
I was just, you know, selfishly hoping to catch Kaiter in the finals for my own live. And that's valid. Watching. You paid to be oh, there. so valid. Yeah. yeah you paid sure. to be there. But, but that was completely independent of the actual story or actual what, like, bigger picture or anything um, of that. That was completely my own investment. So I get, I got what was coming to me on that one. Um, as but to your point, Jonathan, one. not to cut you off, I just want to mention something really quickly. Like you said, like, you know, Kaito chose noah for a reason think about you awada who just debuted at one night dream for noah right his thing is that and he's so fucking young this is the thing that's like crazy to me he's so young that he watched a nakajima match and that is on youtube on youtube okay on youtube and that is what drove him to wanting to be a noah wrestler you go to the dojo and you tell you awada that he just signed a contract with a minor league promotion it's not a minor league promotion to you awada it's his life it's his dream like that like that to me is like where people get so tied up in talking like they're insiders like they're you know like they have any idea of what's going on backstage like like that that stuff to me makes no sense at all at all it's the um it's the second um i'm trying to think of the phraseology for it there was the uh second second naivete um was this one theologian's term but it, it, i've been thinking about how it applies for wrestling we start off we think it's real we find out it's not then a bunch of people that kind of have to be marks in a completely different way so instead of going oh what i just watched was real they go hey i know all about this product i know about the backstage happenings and you get worked a second time in a completely different way um it's a different form of kayfabe that people subscribe to and kind of they have their stories that mean so much to them that this thing happened that you know uh Masao and kawada hated each other and and really just grew to despise one another or um that the same applies to nakajima and kento um yeah i I go in into the book into both of those um for that reason but no people have these stories that they they love to have uh to be true that you know kaito can't politic his way into the finals of the g1 um that noah is burying him that he's really going to sign with wwe or with New Japan at the end of all of this, um, it's because it's the story they they want to be true, whether or not that's actually the case, and these narratives are kind of reflective of that. So, um, yeah, we all kind of want to be marks in our own way, I guess. Um, for a lot of people, it's I'm an insider. I know this this backstory, and um, I say this is the biggest mark of all because I invested, you know, a year of my life into writing about it. So, different type of being a mark. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So speaking of, and I think, I think that's about every thought we have on the G1, unless uh, you guys have anything else to add on the tournament. My thought is, is that Kaito did win the major prize and that's that he got Rohe Oiwa to do his excursion in Noah. So honestly, I think Noah really <laughs> won in the end. We need, we need more young people. It makes a really interesting story for Inamura. Don't get me started on that one again. But like, it's it's just really, I think it's great. I'm really Boyla excited. looks like a Noah wrestler. He's like he the most like non-Noah wrestler, <laughs> like to be like doing an excursion in Noah. Um, great. I know people were trying to make a shitty comment. Like, well, this is like, you know, a guy on Kaito's level, like trying to make a dig at Kaito. And it's like, you guys are really, you're completely off base. Like you have no idea. It's so odd. 
And it's an excursion that's easy to watch. You can just get a Wrestle Universe sub. And I've seen people really excited to be able to watch one of these excursions instead of having to watch Rev Pro, God forbid. So like, you know, now we can actually <laughs> watch a Young Lion excursion. And that's really exciting to a lot of people. So now they're going to go watch a little bit of Noah and maybe it'll turn into a lot of bit of Noah. So you know what? Go for it. I think Kaito won. He won the G1. Oiwa has a big debut match yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. He's going to be tagging with Kaito against Yoshinari yeah. Ogawa and Zack Sabre Jr. And that team of Ogawa and Zack has a little bit of more, more contemporary Noah history, I would say, behind it. But still Noah history nonetheless coming up in September. So that'll be fantastic. Oiwa will be great. It's exciting. It's what I've been hoping that they would do since they started working together again was um, just with the way that the yen is right now and with the way attendance has been fluctuating that they feel the need to work together i think this is probably the best thing that they could have is these um be it the young lions be it the trainees from noah or the trainees from all japan um they're going to gain different audiences how to react in different situations it's going to be a lot of experience that they might otherwise not um not get and i think it's it's just as valid as sending these guys over to america or over to the uk um i think there's some plans to send one of the young lions to australia to the new japan tamashi uh, shows that are happening here i look forward to that but i think that ultimately they're probably getting more experience from from being in noah from being in all japan where they won't necessarily be known by their audiences and will have to get over there and i think it um yeah I, i think it's good to see it's actually happening so you weren't there only to watch wrestling uh and you were kind enough, Jonathan, to share some of your journey with us. However, I know a lot of Pro fans have their eyes on traveling to Japan, especially with all the restrictions lifting. So I was hoping you could share some of your experiences and advice from one wrestling fan to another about visiting Japan. So um, go ahead and tell us just a little bit about your tra- trip. I know you mentioned that you had some qualms about booking APA. <laughs> so I'll try to keep this one brief, but look when it comes to ethical decision making and what choice to make i'm not going to tell anyone don't book apa hotels but i did find out that they are a fairly ultra white ultra right wing group that got in trouble in 2017 for handing out like these extreme pamphlets that said the nanjing massacre never happened and that their ownership is being controversial for that reason so i was kind of like oh i I didn't know about that before I, I booked the hotel. Some people had to point that out to me. And so going into it, I, I'm not going to tell people don't book APA or let's have a boycott here. However you want to use that information is up to you. But it made me kind of go, wow, I wish I'd known and informed myself a bit more before I went ahead and booked this trip. But it was incredibly cheap and well-placed. So it was right next to the Sumo Arena. Um, and I couldn't have asked for a better location-wise, but I definitely felt more dubious after I learned about just some of the undergirding stuff behind that and, and some of that information there. So just be wary of that, I guess, is the first part. But look, um, as far as advice of, of how to travel there and everything, um, I'm not sure where things are up at the moment as far as the Suiki card goes, if you can still get it or not. But there's a card that you can purchase or you could purchase called the Suiki card, which you could top up money and use that as your transport. because Tokyo especially has two to three, maybe more different types of, of train stations. You've got your subway system, you've got the JR line, you've got the 
uh, line that is run by another company. So um, sometimes the train stations have the exact same name. So you'll have a JR station for, say, uh, Rio Goku, which is different to the Rio Goku station for another company, and that can cause confusion. It did in my trip. So the Suica card, the good thing about that is once you buy it, you can top it up. You can use it on any of those lines. You don't need to change tickets or anything like that. My first few trips to Japan, I had to go through and make sure I had the correct ticket for each different type of train and each different type of line. Um, my understanding is the Suica card has had some problems with the chips and with them being in short supply with the pandemic. So um, they might be wrapping that up. But if you can get your hands on one, that just makes that a lot easier. Um, apart from that, get used to walking. You're going to be walking just everywhere. There's a lot of steps you'll get up in Japan. Um, during the G1 months, it's really, really hot. So that will be kind of less of uh, appealing. It was between... 35 to 38 degrees Celsius when I was there. Um, that's somewhere close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you in the US. And um, basically the 100% humidity didn't help either. But um, just bear that, all that in mind. The other only other piece of advice I'll give is uh, apart from packing light because you're going to need that extra space in the suitcase when you go to purchase things at Tutacan, basically not every building is in sequential order in Japan. So it's not like here where you've got, say, building 13 on one side of the road is next to building 15. Um, it's kind of all in the order in which the buildings were built is where the addresses go. And there are three numbers, like one's the order in which it was built, the other's the Chome, and then there's the district, I think. So bearing that in mind, you're going to need Google Maps and to rely on Google Maps a whole heap in order to get anywhere. Don't trust knowing where the address is. Um, you'll get horribly, horribly lost. Data is important when you go over there, so make sure you rent. Probably a portable Wi-Fi is probably the best way. I've certainly heard of eSIMs and things like that. For my taste, the eSIMs didn't have nearly enough data for what I need them for, and I'm not going to trust my provider when it comes to roaming costs, so I always pick up the, uh, through Global Advanced Communications uh, portable Wi-Fi for when I'm over there, which you're going to be using a lot because you're going to be using lots of Google Maps. So... There's a whole lot more you can go into in terms of like specifics. Like if you're looking for tickets at Currican Hall, their box office is located on the fifth floor where the building is and it's open from 10 o'clock every day, um, except for the weekend. So or days they have shows on. Um, so worth going there if you want tickets. Um, buy Sumo Ticks was where I went for my tickets in advance. Um, worth purchasing stuff in advance and planning that out as well because there are going to be so many shows on. Um, there's stuff happening most days in Japanese wrestling. So you've got plenty to do and plenty of options. Excellent advice um, all together. And yeah, you, you did mention that you went to Totokan, which is uh, of course a Holy Grail trip for me and Alicia. Um, so what sort of was that like and what did you end up buying? So that was actually really overwhelming. And um, Totokan is huge to make a really strange comparison it reminded me of the Louvre in Paris in the sense that like you go there and people tell you, you can't really do the whole thing in three hours. You've kind of got like the three hour condensed version of the Louvre um, tour that you can do. If you really want to work through it, it would take you days. Um, I don't know if it's like quite to that extent, but in Tudicon there's so much stuff there that it's going to take you far more time than I ended up having. So I kind of had to do a condensed little trip through the place. I was there for a few hours. Um, 
I was mostly looking at magazines, books, and some other bits and pieces for a project I am working on at the moment. So I was uh, heavily looking for that stuff. But um, it, the thing is, it's it's collector items. These are things that are like ring worn, worn masks, um, things that the wrestlers themselves have donated or that they used to own. And so it's all priced accordingly. You could easily go broke in the place. I wanted to buy James a tiger mask when I was there. And I'm like looking at the prices going, I absolutely could not justify getting my kid uh, a ring worn tiger mask, for instance. Um, if that's the kind of thing you're after, uh, the uh, Mandrake in Nino is probably worth checking out as well if you have time. Um, they've got a bunch of rest of stuff secondhand as well. As far as Tudicon goes, I was completely overwhelmed by it. I first had a massive feeling of joy going in there and was feeling more and more overwhelmed the longer I was there. Worth devoting your time to to go and check that out. Definitely a must for all Puro fans, I would say. You might end up taking more photos rather than purchasing so much stuff, but um, still worth your while from that point. And um, as far as what I ended up getting, I bought James a little Muto figure, a great Muto action figure thing that he loved. I bought a bunch of magazines and books and I kind of had to limit myself to that, though I did troll my wife by texting her and saying to Sarah, hey, uh, I was thinking of picking up this um, GHC heavyweight title. Uh, it's about $3,000 Australian. I'll take it that you agree with me that this is fine if I don't hear back from you in the next few seconds. So the, there was <laughs> that. But I, uh, she messaged me back within a minute to say, sorry, how much? So... That's just worth checking out and seeing that stuff, honestly, um, just to be able to, like, see, I think. I don't know if it's the original, if it's one that's a very close replica, but either way, it looks amazing. And also, while you were there, you visited Kawada's ramen shop, and you met the man himself. So could you tell us a quick bit about what that was like? So Kawada's ramen place... Um, he's got a whole lot of rules there, and he's known kind of as the super Nazi of Japan for that. And um, basically the reason, but there's a good reason for that. Uh, most ramen places fail within the first three years, and he's had to approach things very differently to make sure he was successful to get people in and out quickly as possible. So the rules are all designed for that. Um, so when you go there, you have to mask up. You have to disinfect your hands. You have to not talk to anyone else there. Sit in silence while you're dining unless you're there with a party of other people. Um, and apart from that, no photos in the place itself, unfortunately. it's um, The rule there is he doesn't want the, the distraction. It's um, You can take a photo of your food and he doesn't mind that, but don't take photos of the surrounding area, which is a shame because he's got some amazing-looking memorabilia in there um, that have been donated to him by other wrestlers. But... I went in there, I certainly wanted to try to follow all the rules. Everything in there is in Japanese, so you kind of need the Google Lens uh, or the Google app in order to be able to translate all of that, unless you know kanji. Uh, as some people recording this podcast do, I personally don't really know very much yet. Uh, <laughs> Still learning, <laughs> still getting there. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's very, it's, it's, there's always upper limits and upper challenges with Japanese, and when you think you're getting somewhere with it, new phrases or new challenges come along and this was one of them was just like navigating that um so i grabbed just the first one that i could pay for you put your money in the machine it turns out before you choose the option i was there slamming buttons for a long time until i worked that out so i 
just bought the first ramen. I could see that looked interesting. I got a curry ramen that was amazing. Probably the best meal I had on that trip. Kawhi is very talented at what he does, and that transfers to his skills as a chef. He's clearly been putting effort into learning this. After I made my meal, I thought, well, I have to get the photo with him. So I, you know, the whole Simerson kind of ask for their attention, purchase the, the shirt. He comes out to get the photo with me. I um, made sure we got a couple of those. He then says, oh, check, make sure you're happy with the photo. Like this guy's not the, the, the suit Nazi of Japan. He makes sure you're happy with your experience there. Um, he's just got these strict rules to ensure everyone gets the most out of their experience and gets in and out quickly. So I got my photo with him and then I gave him a copy of Ganburu because he is one of the central characters in that book. One of the key reasons why I think New, uh, all Japan survived at the time and had that amazing feud with New Japan that um, I handed that to him. I told him that I'd written this book and that Fumi Saito had helped me. He laughed at the recognition and mention of Fumi's name and went to hand it back to me like, oh no, presenter, presenter kind of let him know and he goes oh for me i'm like hi <laughs> so he's like oh um to because i gave me a little bow and i thought okay i need to make my train and nothing's going to be quite as good as this moment here so i practically ran out of the place from there i was like oh, i i need to get out of here before I, I take up too much of this man's time but he's incredibly gracious and very kind um he obviously has the tough exterior and comes across in the way that you'd expect him to but amazing dude and he's done something incredible here in transferring uh his life out of wrestling and getting out in the way that he has so um it's worth a while and worth your time it's completely out of my way to go there so i was in rio goku uh or, or close by rio goku um he uh is based in uh Setagaya, i believe so uh, that train stop for me was an hour away by direct train and then some walking. Um, and it's quite a long walk, but it's worth it. Um, just bear all that in mind, allow plenty of time if you're going to travel there. I had to leave quickly so I could make it to the G1 final. So um, I really had to hustle my way out of there. I was late for the show, um, but all well worth it. Recommend people go and check it out. Just bear in mind the rules that he has. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you wound up choosing to do that when you were having your your debate on what to do that day it sounds like it was <laughs> I, I was buzzing the people <laughs> who i'm recording with now to say i don't know what on earth to do do <laughs> i go to the show that i want to go to or do i go to the ramen house and it's like well both of us were like ramen go. house <laughs> yeah go see kawada san <laughs> yeah please the choice was like, between I, I... tjpw and kawada we love tjpw but it, it wasn't a choice it was kawada <laughs> Yes, I, I haven't yet fulfilled my dream of having him put me in a stretch bomb or kick me in the head, but you know, there's still time like, to achieve that but just for now. Introduction was first step. This was the first step. <laughs> so you did mention going to Japan as a sort of research trip. And that brings us to the last thing we really wanted to talk to you about today. And that's media ethics and the way that we communicate about wrestling, especially Pro. In today's world, we are connected by a social network of mass communicated information that is passed around through various means. We've got dirt sheets, we've got Twitter threads, we've got Reddit posts, they all drive me crazy. There are multiple ways to 
access and distribute wrestling media, but there are very few ethical standards of reporting this information. And I know, Alicia, you have a lot of opinions on this. And Jonathan, you have a lot of experience in media. You've been involved in different forms of writing and reporting media your whole life. You teach it. So I'm sure you have a lot of opinions about the current situation of information reporting in this sport that we love so much. Yeah, um, I've been involved one way or another since I was 15. So that's basically my whole life, right? And as far as how it's done and the standards there, I think one of the main problems is, first of all, I, there's a lack of training. I think that the barrier to entry is not what it was, and that's great. Everyone can publish anything, but um, with that, just about anyone can publish anything. So um, you have just as many different ideas out there, whether or not they've been carefully vetted or whether or not the information is correct or credible or uh, anything like that. Um, there's a lot of focus on, I think, the production of and the ownership of the uh, wrestling news and, and everything like that, but very little about kind of the um, media literacy and the media literacy of the internet wrestling community such as it is i think that that's oftentimes where we see things let down where people hear a rumor and they don't then stop to say well is this possibly also wrestlers are workers right they will have their stories that they'll want to tell and they'll exaggerate details and they'll have their own sort of spin on things and sometimes just want to tell a fun story for the sake of a fun story that's how we get Hulk Hogan telling us that he was wrestling for pride in the 1970s and uh, or fighting for pride after he was done working for Inoki in the 1970s, 20 years before pride was invented or kind of this sort of um, thing where we have these fun stories that they love to tell, but are not necessarily credible. And these are the sources sometimes for stories that they'll plan and that people will report um, based on the word of one person without being able to corroborate or, or taking the time to corroborate that. And then, I think because of the mythology that people like to be involved with and because of this second kayfabe that they want to believe certain narratives to be correct, um, we kind of get these. So we see a lot of proliferation of things that are not necessarily, I, I don't know if we want to call it wrestling media, the wrestling internet community, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I think that part of it that hasn't really been looked at very much is on the level of the literacy of the readership and i just mean ability to sift through information ability to discern whether or not this one source is as credible as the other and kind of a fairly flat plane of reading as far as all of that goes and i think that that's part of the reason why we see some of the rumors that we see um there's just also so much other ethical questions to go into in terms of how we go about doing that how are we ensuring that we kind of uh i holding our souls even i struggle with that sometimes with I, I heard a lot of very interesting stories um certainly when i was interviewing people for this book from people who did not then want to go on the record with those stories and so i had to sometimes make decisions about that and regarding that and obviously i can't betray trusts and can't betray uh the people that are taking the time to give me this information especially if it could impact on them in some negative way and that was something I wasn't expecting to have to traverse. I've had to do that in other jobs for sure, but didn't expect that with this book. But um, sometimes you have to make decisions about whether you include certain information or whether you cut stuff. And some of that has to be a hard 
choices. So it would have been a more interesting book for some of the things I could have included, but uh, I didn't. And I think overall, it's probably better for it. Um, for a lot of reasons, I didn't go for quite sensationalistic stuff. And I think it's a better book as a result for that. But you do have to make those choices sometimes about whether or not you include each and every story you've been given. And certainly people we see are being worked and are being given stories that some people want them to share and are sharing those those stories and running with these narratives whether or not they are accurate is just an observation i'm making uh, i don't think it's fair to single out any one particular kind of outlet or person for doing that either because it happens that often that i think it's a, a broader picture than simply this or that channel is responsible for it yeah, that you touched on a lot of stuff. And Sorry, it was quite the rant. No, yes, no. <laughs> it was not meant to be disparaging at all. No, you touched on um, some really amazing stuff. And um, one thing that specifically really um, popped out at me was people not being discerning of their sources. And uh, Alicia, you and I talk about it all the time with um, like Tokyo sports, which of course we know is a kayfabe rag. You, you always compare it to the New York post. It's, it's um, a lot of people don't really have that media re literacy and they sort of flatten it. And then you also have this situation where a lot of people are now using uh, machine translators, especially like Deeple, which runs on an AI system. So it sounds very fluent, but it really isn't. And um, people are now publishing that as um, being translations of media. And that ends up flattening a lot of that nuance. And that destroys a lot of your media literacy as well. So I think that's really interesting that you, you brought that up, Jonathan. I mean, certainly um, as far as all that goes, there's also a lack of nuance with how people critique um, wrestling media as well. Like, for instance, Dave Meltzer, a lot of people either say he's the best and amazing at what he does, or he's terrible and he makes things up. And I think surely at some point we need to have an honest discussion about his contributions and about how it lies somewhere in between those two things. Um, it doesn't have to be neither extreme end of things. I think he's done incredible work and I was, I, 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 certainly drawing his work a fair bit but he has flaws just like anyone else that is working at this and i think there's been a lack of real consideration to that it's also at a point right now let just make one final point here in all of my my pissed off little ramblings is that um there are so many other sorts of people breaking stories right now and it's not just Meltzer anymore it's he's not the sole one uh, the podcast that you are currently listening to is responsible for a lot of the information I needed from my sources and is doing incredibly important work as regards to all of this. So there's a gap in wrestling media, I think, some people are trying to fill. Yeah, I think that's, you're, you brought up something that's really important because um, me and Justin Nipper of um, Write That Down with whom we cite over Fight Game Media, we talk about this all the time because uh, I've struggled trying to remember like at any point since I started watching Japanese wrestling so going back into like late 2014 going into 2015 like did it feel the way that wrestling media quote-unquote feels right now did it feel this way and I keep landing on no it didn't feel this way it didn't feel this way for many years up until I think very recently um, and that's because to your point Jonathan there are 
um, people springing up all the time that are, you know, quote unquote, breaking news that are contributing to media in some way, shape or form, which is how things work now with the way that social media works. And I think that what's really interesting about pro wrestling is that we don't really have any really like regulating sort of media bodies or people that we can really look to except for a Dave Meltzer. But to Jonathan's point, there's a lot of people that are trying to use Dave Meltzer as sort of the angel and the devil exclusively in those ways, right? But also as like the only person that we can look to as a media guy across wrestling. And that can become really problematic. We talked about this in like one of our episodes where we had Dana and Sarah on recently, but that's why you need to diversify your media. You need to listen to more than just one voice where in terms of where you get your information and your media, because yes, like Dave has gotten things wrong, but also you need to be not just listening to Western sources for your your news and your ideas of what's happening in Japan and on Japanese pro wrestling. I mean, that's what I think is getting us into a lot of trouble is that there are people who exclusively listen to other Westerners about Japanese pro wrestling news and in history and like whatever on this, but you need to be looking to like actual people who like experience Japanese wrestling to really get a full holistic view of Japanese pro wrestling. There is there are cultural nuances here at play that you're not going to be able to get from a Dave Meltzer, from some other guy who just, you know, put up a blog the other day and is trying to, you know, write articles and tell you whatever. Like there's a lot of things at play here and diversifying your media and really spending time to understand those cultural nuances and pick up on um, more diverse people in quote, this quote unquote media sphere is, is really important, but we're not really seeing a lot of that. I don't think. And I mean, when it is is done, you have certainly people that are doing well, that are doing better, who do important work that fly well and truly under the radar or who maybe don't get the audiences they deserve. Um, yeah, I I am kind of loath to go into much more detail than that without singling, you know, singling people out. But I think that what you guys are doing is incredibly important based on the fact that you are seeking those translations of the original source material. And that is where a lot of these areas are creeping in and where I think that it's kind of, um, I don't know, you should both be raking in it as far as funding for this particular project for that reason, for that, that sheer fact that's that important. I think that um, that's part of the reason why I'm quite glad that I've actually got a publisher for this book and for the next one as well, is that I've got access to some degree of funds other than my own. I'm quite happy to pay for it myself and I've done that before. But as far as getting stuff translated, like there are options out there to get AI translations and we don't have to go into that. I'll just quickly say, I don't want to go down that route. I think we do need human beings to do the work of translation. And I think that we should not be feeding the algorithms as far as AI goes. And I, I, we could do a whole episode on that. I'll leave it be for the time being. I'm going to add to that because I, I think you're you're right without getting too into the weeds. But I'll just give it a quick example of, um, I think it was over the weekend that Rachel translated some of Jake Lee's tweets for me. And he's sort of notorious for, he's tough. He's really tough. If you try to feed a I'm Jake really Lee tweet proud. into Deeple. 
it's it's going to come out like nothing to you because that's just he's very tough in the way that he writes to discern um so um rachel did me a huge favor in just taking his tweets and and hand translating them for me so that i could talk about what i knew he was talking about but i wasn't getting the full meaning of some of the tweets and i wanted to make sure that i understood before i talked about them on twitter and i was so grateful because the difference between what people spit at me and then what rachel was able to um to to do i mean it was literally like the difference between like this very flat robotic thing that people spit at me and then rachel translations I, it was like hearing his voice you know like the way the exact way that he speaks and like that was a very emotional thing for me because when you don't have the experience of of hand translated materials um the most tragic thing about being a fan of, of japanese pro wrestling is not understanding japanese is not being able to speak it not being able to to understand it so you can go your entire time being a fan of this, never actually understanding how the wrestler you love actually sounds because of the that, you know, the lack of uh, access to actual translated materials. And I've been very lucky that, that Rachel has um has been translating more and more of stuff from like the wrestlers that we love, because now like I, you know, I can look at these tweets from Jake and I'm like, oh, my God, like that's that's his voice. But you're not going to get that from what the AI is going to spit at you. You're going to lose a lot of context. There was like an important line in his tweets that was coming out wrong and deeple. Rachel had it right. Um, and that changed the tweets a little bit. And then what it was his voice. It was, it was being able to read something in his voice, the way he speaks. And that was um, incredible. So to your point, AI is not the way to go in terms of how we, we, we look at translated materials. We need to invest money into translators, into actual people who are going to be translating anything it's so important to invest in people in this field especially not ai i am so fucking anti-ai like don't even get me started i cannot say enough like that to have like i am very lucky that i get to, to obviously like rachel is one of my best friends and then you know they do so much translating but then i'm very lucky to work with kana who also has done a ton of translating for us over the past couple of months and to be able to like have these older like even like marafuji and kenta articles like suddenly like translated by Kana and it's like oh my god like this is them and their voices and they're saying things and like I would never have this like I didn't have access to this stuff for years and now I have it because we're able to pay for those type of translations like you can't get that with AI you're not gonna get that with AI I fucking promise you and I mean I'll just say this why why did we immediately go here is this thing that we can feed this information to that can do this work for us. And they immediately went for the creative jobs when they did that. There was no thought to, hey, this thing can make objective decisions based on mathematics for us. Maybe it could replace a CEO or two. <laughs> no, of course not. Like if anything, um, I don't I don't want to get too into it because I don't like to reveal um personal information about myself, but just the conversations that we had um today, it's not about eliminating how do I phrase this? It would be, it would be more about eliminating the average worker than it would be about um, anyone at the top, anyone in leadership. Yeah, extremely anti-AI. <laughs> and as far as um, translation goes, at least for the purposes of our conversation, like, um, you know, Jonathan, you're very generous in speaking about us and that we should be, you know, sort of raking it in to be completely honest if it helps people we don't we are we are very lucky that there are a, a very small handful of people who um 
who donate a little bit of money to us every month that we sort are sort of hoarding right now for the next like big haul that we'll end up doing um for translations and that's what we've spent you know more, most of our well actually all of our donation money has oh, been spent cool. on um professional translations done by kana um the last big batch we did with kana for next dream part one is where like the first basically batch of donations went so yeah so like we we just don't and i think um to wrap this into some of our media ethics conversation and what I was kind of alluding to before is that right now what is really popular is that people want to pay five dollars and they get into your Patreon and then you tell them backstage gossip for five dollars a month. That's what's really popular. Me and Rachel don't yeah. tell you. I mean, I can make shit up for five dollars a month if that helps you guys, but I don't know if that's the backstage gossip that you want to hear. Um, people aren't clamoring to give us um some funds to help us with the purposes of translating um some of these materials um we are grateful for anyone that's ever given us some that's that's considered it for those few people that are on recurring gifts every month but we're so grateful for it but right now it's very popular for people to go to um to someone's patreon and give them five dollars a month just to hear quote-unquote backstage rumors and scoops and such all of which is just framed in these terms and uh, is kind of about finding out the the story they don't want you to know the kind of the stuff that they um have what's really going on behind the scenes and uh, you're getting into so much murky territory though uh, yeah i i could go on for the rest of today about that honestly i mean i think you summed it up earlier with them just becoming a different kind of mark I think that was a really perfect uh, summary of what sort of you become when you fork over $5 for fake backstage gossip. And uh, that's, that's really it. And you could um, use that $5 for, you know, saving up to pay a professional translator. And of course, to be a carny, be a shill, we do have a Kofi. Um, and you can uh, pass that on to us if you are feeling so generous. We do Five dollars really to save up for Jonathan's Indiegogo at the end of the There's fall that season. Too. Yeah, we can be a carny oh, for him sweet. as well. Jesus, I haven't, I haven't even thought about that, and and the whole the idea <laughs> of these campaigns gives me fucking anxiety. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, um, speaking of the book you have coming out, um, you did mention something earlier that I thought was really interesting was you talked about sort of you need to be selective in what you report. And there's a lot of um, trust and a lot of things that go on with that. But one thing that has driven me insane and Alicia insane is uh, this tendency to selectively report or selectively translate only certain pieces of a story in order to push a specific narrative. And um, we sort of talked about this before, but you have a really holistic and nuanced approach to writing your book. So I wanted to sort of go in a little deeper to how you approach this. Like, obviously, like you said, you can't include every single minute of Noah's history, but you still have the integrity to tell the entire story. So how do you set out on what you research, what you report, and how does that paint a complete picture? Because I think a lot of um, aspiring wrestling podcasters, writers, reporters, they pick and choose in such a way that tells the story they want to tell, especially with Japanese media. So how do you sort of avoid that and tell a story as it is being told so it, it's a difficult one because in part there's um sometimes there's not a whole heap of information about certain topics or 
at least readily accessible part of the task of this kind of book and why I think I'm writing it is that there are gaps in information if you like or things that are not well spoken about or well delved into um so part of it is determining what are those areas where we could stand to hear more or that I'm intrigued about and would like to know more about another part is I, we alluded to it earlier that, that I mean and, and I'm not singling out or by any stretch criticizing Dave Meltzer when I say this but there are some prominent voices within wrestling um, media or within the wrestling sphere that have had the chance to have their say by now, who have well and truly had the chance to cover this. And so I do lean fairly heavily into Meltzer because Meltzer's covered so much of this stuff and I can't really do it without tapping into some of his work, but I had to make sure that at least part of this project was going to other voices, was going to other people um, other than also to tell the story, to try to get some people involved who have a passion for Noah, to try to ask people questions outside of, of the, um, even the wrestlers themselves, to try to get some of the context and some of the pictures uh, regarding this. I kind of had to look to sources other than the people that have been kind of well-trodden as well as that. Um, I, I think the other aspect to all of this is uh, ultimately you can't include everything. Uh, this book is not going to be the exhaustive history of Noah by any stretch, because I think that that would be a much bigger project than what I was simply uh, seeking to do here. Um, I was seeking to give the history overall uh, of how this company has survived. But within that, you have so much scope for different viewpoints, different standpoints, different um, kinds of ways in which that story has not been told well. Um, a lot of people, for example, will seek to blame Matoko Baba and to suggest that uh, that she was responsible because she was not good and not a great promoter. And I don't want to say, well, she's perfect or blameless or anything like that, but there's definitely a degree of misogyny in how people understand her contribution to the year 2000 roster split. And I kind of tried to go into that with Gumbaru. I tried to go into it with the book, but there's a whole nother side to the split that I didn't particularly know that much about, but was to do with Misawa and his desire to split off and to kind of uh, have his own wrestling his own way and feeling he could not do that within the structures of all japan because of the baggage that came with the all japan logo with what he describes as um the way that um bob always did things and what he described as kind of um living room wrestling which is the wrestling that families are watching he didn't want to just be confined to that and i go into that a little bit in the book as well as far as kind of how um he felt like he wanted to establish his new thing which was the way that the fans would want it and the way the wrestlers would want to do it to give them their freedom to do that and to do wrestling their way so with all of that um you know i have some confines on me in terms of i can't you know uh, there are space considerations there are considerations for this being one book and not a multi-volume series but absolutely yeah trying to go to other sources trying to expand things out beyond that which was already sort of discussed and those well-trodden kind of sources that people have already used. I actually want to add something here too about like this tendency to selectively report or selectively translate for, you know, a specific narrative. I have to approach this differently because I don't write the way that 
Jonathan does and I don't publish books and I don't necessarily interview people the way he does but for the purposes of doing what we do with the podcast and with outlining and the research we have to do and all the sourcing and the translations I often have to frame it as like the truth is so much more interesting than any narrative I could ever make up on the spot right I was getting super emotional writing the biographies that I did for the destiny outline that we just did with Jason because that that was every word of it was this was really all those stories like those were the stories and we were just kind of bringing them to to life and talking about them right so I don't have to make anything up because the stories speak for themselves but that's why you become a wrestling fan because the stories speak to you right so the truth is always going to be so much more interesting than anything I, I could make up for my own devices which I don't really quite understand in that way but the thing that is really important to me, especially because of the language barrier that's present here, because there's such a tendency when you're involved in a fandom that revolves around something where there's a language barrier, I think there's a tendency for people, whether they realize it or not, to forget that the subjects are real human beings who have real thoughts and real lives and real integrity and that does get lost. So for me, with the language barrier, it's even more important for me to honor the wrestlers voices and to the best of my ability right because there's always going to be you know some issues with the language barrier but to honor their voices to the best of my ability because again they're they're real people and I just have to you know continuously ask myself when I'm writing about someone am I honoring this person's story their truth and their voice and if I can say yes to those components and yes I'm doing the right thing if there's if I waver on any of those things because there's something that I'm that I'm trying to use a source that, I, that I'm trying to use but I can't necessarily perfectly contextualize it in what I'm trying to write then it needs to come out and I need to rewrite that part until I'm certain that I have it right that I have something right to represent them and their voice I think that people forget that we are talking about very real people even if they're playing characters much of the time I mean, it's hard to kind of <clears throat> look back on someone like Misawa because in some ways you see this mythologizing about him. You see this memorializing of him and it's very hard to capture. And I, I hope to have done some of this. I don't think I did this in the book as much as I might have liked. It's a bit hard sometimes with the stories that you can include, but I really wanted to capture the weirdo that he was and how strange his sense of humor was, but how great as, as well. And just um, I, I love the story, for instance, that when um, Kabashi was, uh, you know, he was toward the end of his recovery from cancer and he's coming back. Um, he still had to kind of go and get treatment here and there. And so, um, you know, Misawa made sure he was booked only in Tokyo and made sure that he was close by and that he would be close by treatment at all times, took great care of him. But also told the boys, you know, should we send Kabashi's son some gifts right now, you know? maybe some pornography like this 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 kind of strange relationship that he had where he's so caring but also you know also just ripping the guy at these kind of key points he well. loved yeah. a dirty joke he yeah, loved so a dirty so, like, joke loved it he was crazy but like that's like the part that like you're right jonathan like i, I and, and i'm sure you did a fantastic job in and being able to balance all parts of who he was and we, and we briefly touched on this in the destiny episode but i think that talking about Misawa and 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 really getting into him would be so much more interesting if we stopped viewing him through the lens of 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 only being a deity 
and we talked about him as a real human being and and you know and being a real human being like he he loved a good dirty joke he was always doing like weird like kind of porny jokes that was just his thing um but he was also like an incredibly stubborn man and i think it's completely fine to honor even the worst parts of someone and how we remember them and think about them Th- that's not dishonoring someone I-, I think it's okay to have a-, a much more holistic view and appreciation for someone and their life and their contributions even if um, we're talking about what a stubborn man he was but you tell some of those stories Jonathan in Gomburu. Um, and I don't think anyone reading Gomburu could ever walk away from that being like he dishonored Misawa but your book I think actually and I think I have said this to you but your book did a lot more in my opinion to humanize Misawa in a way that we don't often see in other, um, I suppose, depictions of him. Thanks for saying that. Um, I don't think I got to include in that or in the current book the story that I really, really liked, which was um, just for stuff ending up on the cutting room floor. But um, Mike Modest, uh, Masao once asked Modest, uh, "Is it okay if I break your nose in our match?" And Modest is like, "Are you kidding me? What? 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 Is this a rib?" And he's like, "No, no, I'm serious. I would like to break your nose." Um, <laughs> modest had a context his nose was already like kind of recovering from previously being broken it looked like it clearly wouldn't take that much to break it again so he'd been through that he knew what that was like so they had the match and masao went and hit him in the face and modest fell down looked at it went oh no he didn't succeed there's a little bit of blood but not much so then (laughs) masao hits him again successful break and um Modest said he didn't feel a thing, but he was feeling really embarrassed. The blood's trickling out of his nose. Just, he's, and I've got a nice bonus for it as well after that. Like he got paid a, a nice bonus for having his nose broken by Masawa. So he could be a strange guy. He did these things. Um, I didn't get to include that story um, in the final version of the book, but there's a little exclusive for you there, whether or not you want it. I'm, no, but it's... it's yeah it's tremendous though because like that's that's what he was that's who he was and I think that like I love things like that because I think that this is also like a completely different podcast but people who don't ever watch Noah any era of Noah have this idea of Noah that doesn't actually exist um it's people think of it as this very like Bushido sort of like warrior they were trying to kill each other on the apron only type of promotion. Um, And like, while that's true at at peak points of the promotion, um, this is also a promotion where like tons of weirdo shit would happen all the time um, in the ring. And like weirdo shit still happens in the ring. And like, um, gosh, like Misawa was like involved in like some like that. Remember that weird mask? Remember that? Oh yeah. Yeah. They were doing dirty shit with that weird mask too. So like, there's just, like people think that it's like this very serious promotion where like there was never any comedy and also never any western um heel tactics or cheating which like don't get me started I can get on a soapbox about that too but there's a whole history of that as well but like there are so many layers to Noah that people I think just don't um don't realize and they have this idea of Misawa as like this only stoic man but like every image I have in my head of Misawa is usually him laughing because that's also who he was he was yeah. always laughing and I think that it's it's good to have um I don't know we're, we're we're getting off topic here but I think it's I think it's good to still have these um these conversations around um because that's a whole other you know bit of, of topic around this is you know the way people the way people who don't know the promotions that they cover 
cover things drives me up a fucking wall. Why would you choose to cover <laughs> something that you don't actually know? Is it possible for every single person to know or understand every year of history in the promotions that they enjoy? No. Will I ever claim to know every detail of every 23 years of Noah? No. But I can get pretty fucking close on a lot of things. Um, I would never turn around and try to cover New Japan, though, because I don't know it the way that I know Noah and the way that I know certain eras of all Japan, right? That drives me nuts. Um, as we wind down here, Jonathan, though, I just want to ask you one more question because this is endlessly fascinating for me and Rachel. There's a lot of issues um, in the way that people report around citing things, frankly, um, including sources and also being, um, you know, just transparent about how you obtain these sources, right? Um, and what we kind of, we kind of rather referred to this earlier, um, but people don't often explain um, some of the the nuance around things like Tospo and how you're supposed to take Tospo in comparison to how you would take maybe a Shoe Pro article. There's a lot of differences in how you would take, um, you know, those two different media types. So um, I guess what we want to ask you is, um, how do we hold people more accountable for sourcing and transparency? What do you think are the obstacles in this? Well, so there's a few things there. Um, there's you mentioned at some point the word came up to do with regulation or to do with kind of this sort of thing. And it's like, I, we don't have, for instance, in Australia, and I suspect it's much the same in the US, but any particular great kind of regulations as regards um, media. And I, my, my whole soapbox on this is maybe we shouldn't either because I'm, I'm very suspect about government attempts to get involved in what counts as good and bad media reporting. But with that come then the fallout from that, which is that um, if it is largely self-regulatory as this stuff is, then that oftentimes means that people get away with all sorts of shit and there's sort of reporting that is not transparent. So it's a broader issue than just um, wrestling and certainly um, has higher stakes than what we are dealing with with pro wrestling but we certainly for instance we had in australia a debate about um plain packaging laws of cigarettes and the way in which that was conducted there was a front page article written by for the australian by someone who claimed that the legislation had not worked who himself was on the board for philip morris which is the major cigarette company here in australia who then then did not have to declare the fact that that clear conflict of interest came up so it's broader than just wrestling it's something that i don't have definitive answers on for how we do that like it's important that we hold people to account for what they they write apart from me and please don't do that to me with the books or any mistakes that i've inevitably made along the line but yeah i think in the whole thing like it kind of is worth i guess pointing this stuff out where the errors do crop up the thing is is that it's worth asking people where they source some of this information from. I, I, for instance, when I was writing um, the Muto years, I loved the story that Kawada and Fuchi went to Matoko Baba and told her not to sell to, uh, to Muto because they didn't trust him. And the more digging I did on that particular story, it turned out that the origins for it were somewhere in a fan forum. And mm -hmm that um, Fumi Saito had never heard of it. It wasn't in 
uh, Shoe Pro, it hadn't really been reported on at the time. Is that being the case? It's just a myth that has come up since. And people will still hold to that and believe in that. They'll listen to this podcast and still want to believe that um, that that event happened. It wasn't really who Kawada was. Kawada is not a political animal like that. Um, so sometimes you also have to dig into the stuff that you read and sort of see if this lines up as well. And I think we have to take some responsibility ourselves as readers and consumers of media that we have to be a bit more discerning on this and question a little bit further as to how people know what they know. I encountered one source that had a big story about the, the story about um, what happened with uh, and the incident that led to Muto leaving his presidency of all Japan when I was working on that book. And someone just said the source at the bottom of the page was Facebook. And, and that was what counted as citations. So there's a lot of this that's being done um, from people who have pretty big platforms. Uh, I think we, we as readers need to be a bit more responsible for what we consume, for how we do that, whether or not we push back on that, unless it's to me, in which case that would be unpleasant for me personally. So please don't do that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's like, I think you brought up a lot of um, really great points. And I think it's really... I wish people like like you hammered home there were more discerning and I think part of that is also just in people questioning like you don't have to be rude but you should be able to just ask someone like hey where did you get the information in this you don't list any citations which I think is like the crux of most articles um a quick example I'll give is I recently read an article that was about um Kento and Katsuhiko's relationship going into one night dream not a single thing was um was cited but had the most incredible descriptions of 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 things that like really did not align with reality and and were were clearly very not true but this person wrote about them as if they were true but some of them i found really very um harmful um this there was a suggestion throughout the article that katsuhiko was not a good role model for children and was not good with children but kento was a good role model for children granted like kento was well known for how he treats children um during shows but katsuhiko i i i have seen the photos of him like when he was you know first in diamond ring like being a kid himself you know down on, on one knee next to a child fan taking a photo with them like he is very well known for how good he is with children um even at the most recent like fan big fan meet and greet um, there's so many photos of like the hardcore Noah fans that I follow on Twitter who brought their young children there and then put them in photos with him and like him like just being so sweet and interacting with them like he's very well known for being very very good with kids he likes kids so I found the the assertion that he is he is not good with kids and not a good role model to children just to make the weird point that Kento is good with children to be very harmful but that's sort of the weird thing of of people just never being held to having sources, but then like people will retweet that, you know? So it's very odd. Yeah. Basically long way to say, be discerning of, of like where you're, you're getting your media from and ask more questions about where people are getting their media from if they don't have any citations. It's also, I mean, you, you mentioned before too, these are human beings at the end of the day. Um, they're also not their characters that we, we see on TV. And um, some people I've spoken to have said, it's quite amazing to watch them, to turn it on and 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 to embrace the character as they walk out through the curtain i i um you know and and to see them as human beings and to see them when the the switch is not on 
is a guy during the show that he was not in a match, which was um, night three at Kurken during the N1. He was there and um, took photos with fans before the show. And he was not really in what you might consider character mode at that point. He was just there for the fans. And so he would take the photo. He would make sure every single fan that was with him got a little bit of something extra of his time, whether he just sort of spoke to them a little bit or got them an extra photo or did something extra um, so that they could take away more than just, I took a photo with the champ and then had to leave. Um, yeah, that was I, you could tell he was going to a little that. bit. Sorry, yeah, yeah sorry, I, I, a bit of stat, guys. Um, but yeah, Jake Lee, so on that night, so he made sure during the photo session he had with fans that, yeah, he gave the fans their extra time with that he was very mask off during that time. And um, these are ultimately people, at the end of the day, there can be more harm done to people as a result of the re- reporting if it's irresponsible. And um, I think that there are examples we could cite for that. But um, yeah, just keep, for the sake of brevity, there's, there's more um, ultimately on the line here than just wrestling. Very well said. Yeah, I think that's that's perfectly said and that's um, just beautifully summed up and exactly where I landed on too is we need to just ask more questions and we don't need to be rude about it. But um, we just keep asking questions about the media that we have, that we interact with and uh, just keep an eye out and make sure that people are sourcing things and that you're finding these sources yourself and you're um, taking as much as you can directly from the mouths of the wrestlers and and the mouths of the media that's um, immersed in the culture. And also reaching out to the right people for help and not being afraid to ask for help and accept help. If you don't know something or need more background, that's weirdly a thing that Rachel and I have discovered through doing this. that like is not a common thing, but if you don't know something, but you know, other people know better, make a connection and have them help you or like, you know, vice versa. But like, there should be way more open exchanges of information. And that way we can, you know, like, you know, Jonathan was saying about this, like whole bullshit thing on the message board about Kawada and um, Fuchi, like we could weed out way more bad information if we worked more as a collective on, on the information that we have and what is cited versus what is not. I think that's brilliantly said. And our, uh, And if you do want to reach out and ask us a question, you can. Our DMs are open unless they are about what Yuki Yoshioka. And uh, yeah, you can you can always reach out to us. Jonathan, if you could go ahead and uh, give a plug as well. Tell us if your DMs are open um, and tell people where to find you, what you can do. I was impressed enough with Yuki Yoshioka, so don't at me about him. I enjoyed his work <laughs> when, I, when I saw him before the, the Dragon Gate stands are coming after me. But um, <laughs> in seriousness, uh, I, I definitely, uh, if people want to contact me regarding that, it's actually the thing I really enjoy about doing this more so than really any other aspect of, of it is getting to speak to people about wrestling and about kind of, about what aspects of that they've enjoyed or kind of, yeah, like for, for all of my complaints about the kind of lack of transparency sometimes or issues with the IWC, it is a place that's great to hear this sort of stuff about and to discuss with people. So as to what wrestling they're enjoying and so on and so forth. So uh, my DMs are open at least for now. So at Jonathan Foy on Twitter and uh, basically uh, as far as all of that goes, I, I'm happy for people to ask questions or if people, um, ever want to talk wrestling yeah that's fine for the time being until i encounter some people that don't like what i have to write in which case i'll have to close it or something (laughs) 
And make sure you go pick up your copy of Gamburu and um, the Muto Years over at Amazon as well. You can pick up both there, which is well worth doing. We'll have some more information about the crowdfunding campaign when that's actually to hand. Um, still in early days, so uh, unfortunately nothing to announce about that just yet. Thank you so much. We're really, really looking forward to that when it comes out. So definitely keep an eye on it. I'm sure you will be able to um, hear more on that as it comes out. So keep an eye on um, his Twitter as well. And of course, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at kickout299. We are also on Instagram at kickout299. I am Rachel. I'm on Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y Star. You can also find me on Blue Sky as Milky Star, and that's M-I-L-K-Y Star. I'm very excited about that. Um, Alicia, if you want to go ahead and bring us home. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sharanui Kai with two eyes. I am locked. Um, will probably be locked forever, but you can request me if you want to. It's fine. I am on Blue Sky under the same name. Um, and if you haven't already, um, please leave us a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform of choice. We are blown away to have 52 five-star reviews right now, which is pretty incredible. Thank you all so much for doing that. It really does help us fight the algorithm, gets more eyes on us. It really is just an incredible thing. So please um, do that if you haven't already. And um, we'll have some stuff coming, um, your other stuff coming your way soon. Um, there's a Talking Triple Crown coming up. And September will also be um, Next Dream Part 2, finally. Kept you guys waiting Yay. this whole time, but it's coming out. Thank you all so much. And thank you, um, Dr. Jonathan, for joining us and for, for chatting all this stuff with us today. We really appreciate it. And we will talk to you all soon.